podcast this week, we mix fire and water as we talk to Leah Lewis and Mamadou Athi, the stars of Disney Pixar's Elemental. Plus, we choose to accept an interview with Hayley Atwell, star of the new Mission Impossible film, Dead Reckoning Part 1. All that plus usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that has been utterly depressed by the existence of Threads, the movie about nuclear war or the social media app. You decide. <laughs> you decide. It's both probably, actually, isn't it? Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Geek Queen Helena Hara is here. Helen, I must grill you about your Glastonbury experiences. <laughs> sure, I feel like we'll be saying that for the next year, but absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> what? Hi. What? Why would you think that? <laughs> any second now. Any second any now. Any minute. Any second now. Uh, we're also joined by great big fucking nerd, James Dyer. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, James. I'm going to grill you about your Glastonbury experiences. How was How was it? How was Glastonbury for you I, this I, year? I, it was great. I sat at home and did nothing. Good. About Excellent. average then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty consistent for me. Although oh. my finger's grown back, so that's exciting. James's finger has grown back. It Genuinely is, grown back. It like, has regenerated. Not, as I have oh. said before, I am part lizard. You literally cannot tell that I severed the end of my finger. It actually does look remarkably non-gross. Right? I know. I know. It, it's it's magic. I, it's extremis, is what it is. Anyway, who cares about you guys? Uh, I'm much more focused on the the person whose whose buttocks are occupying the fourth chair at the moment. I unnecessarily sexualized you there. I apologize, Jeremy Dillon, host of the My Favorite Album podcast, and all round uh, Bonza bloke, uh, all the way from down under. He returns the triumphant champion once again to the fourth chair. How are you, sir? G'day, Chris. It's really nice to be here. I have actually grilled Helen about her Glastonbury experience. Yeah. Um, and it's so have I, so have I, but just not on air. You know, it's nice to be, you know, sitting in the chair recently occupied by the great Eddie Hamilton. And, you know, in a Dan Stevens like fashion, I had to beat off a lot of American men to get this <laughs> spot. So that's fair. Uh, should, we should say that, uh, that Jeremy is the best dressed person uh, that I think any of us know. Uh, yes. Jeremy right now is wearing, well, uh, Jeremy, how would you describe what you're wearing? The clothes, obviously, but uh, for the folks at home, what are you clad in? Uh, I've got black pants on and yeah, leather. A leather pants like like Ross and friends. Well, but you're, you're did you need talcum off. powder to get them on? No, yeah. this good thing about these pants, which were very cheap, um, <laughs> and they're quite stretchy and quite good in hot weather. Um, but they're you know some kind of plastic weave. I'm sure it's poisoning on the inside <laughs> or whatever. But they're very comfortable and very accommodating mm. to my weight fluctuations. <laughs> Does your weight constantly fluctuate uh, on like like a day to day basis? Do you wake up it's thirty two? Wake up the next day it's thirty six. Next day it's thirty four. Like, how, how does like that work? the Hulk? Uh, yeah. yeah, closer to that than I would like to admit. Sometimes <laughs> actually, yeah. All right, fair enough. Uh, uh, and anyway, we buried the lead, lovely, which is the the pink sequin pink and beaded jacket, which is beautiful. It is a work it is, of art. It is very very nice indeed. Very very lovely indeed. Will you be wearing that to Barbie, or do you have a, a more? Barbie appropriate. Jacket. I mean, I think I have to. I don't think I could come up with anything more Barbie appropriate than an <laughs> embroidered pink blazer. So it is the right shade of pink. I think it's going to work. Yeah. Strong energy from from Jeremy <laughs> at the moment. I have to say. Uh, listen, I have to start off with an apology uh, to to you, and in fact, because after the show, the initial plan was that uh, you and I would, would uh, run off uh, hand in hand to uh, Hyde Park in London, where we would take in uh, a gig by the Boss, and I don't mean. Uh, Chris Duncan, the CEO and head of Bauer Media, uh, although that, of course, it would in I'm some sure way be great very compelling, mm. very, very compelling indeed. Uh, I mean, Bruce Springsteen, 
uh, our old pod, John Bruce Springsteen. Uh, unfortunately, due to my having to edit this fucking podcast, I yeah. can't. I can't make it. You know that. I'm not just telling you this for the first time. You haven't just learned this information, but I feel I should apologize publicly. To, yeah, that'd be a terrible way. Just so you know. it on me on air so <laughs> yeah. that I couldn't say anything. We're not going after the podcast. Yeah, it's like, um, it's, off. it's like when, um, uh, oh, what's his, Jay, Jay, um, what's his name? Jay thingy from Jerry Maguire. The guy from Jerry Maguire. Jay who, Moore. Jay, Jay Moore. Moore, yeah, who takes Jerry to a crowded restaurant to fire him because he won't make a scene at a crowded restaurant. So that, that's not what this is, but uh, I, I am going to say that I am very, very gutted to be missing that because I've never seen Bruce Springsteen in concert. I've seen him live because he's been on the podcast, but I've never seen him do his live. thing. Yeah, so I'm gutted. Well, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have to dance in the dark without you, which is <laughs> a shame. Yeah, you're, you're bringing Courtney Cox, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm picking her up from the tube station afterwards. <laughs> It'd be amazing if he dragged her on stage, wouldn't it? It'd be absolutely incredible. Uh, have you ever seen Springsteen live? I've is seen him, this will be my sixth time. I've oh, seen wow. him uh, two times in Australia, Wembley Stadium, no, three times in Australia, once at Wembley Stadium. I saw him on Broadway. Um, oh, cool! I was. I have not been. I have not conversed with him, but I was close enough to shake his hand at that one. So oh, that was nice. That's nice. Uh, who is? I'll, I'll open this out to you guys. This is essentially the question section now. Okay. Uh, who is the? I know this is this is music, but who's the musical artist you've seen most? Is it? It won't be Springsteen for you. No, it's it? Elvis Costello for me. Elvis Costello. I think I've seen him about a dozen times, and I'm seeing him in New York on Wednesday night. Ah. Oh. I think mine's Lizzo. Wow. Really? Yeah, I've seen her three times. I haven't seen like crazy, crazy numbers. Oh, so you're like, you're not like... I'm not like in the hundreds. You don't obsessively go back and back and back and back. um, So I I would absolutely, in a heartbeat, go back and see you two again. I've seen that. Oh, that's very nice of you. Two or three times. Um, Not you two. But, you know, I felt left out of that. I, I have, <laughs> I have forgiven them for trying to give me a free album. I know the world has not. Um, Imagine they trying to give I you a free concert that they just great. showed up in your living room one night. I just started playing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I would be okay with that. I would understand it was coming from would be a good fucking place. Furious. <laughs> be. I feel like I'd, if I opened the door and let them come along and listen, they'd be all right. You know? Yeah. Anyway, of course, it'd be difficult to find your your house because you live with the streets of no name. Hey, oh boy, Jimbo. Soundgarden. <laughs> no, <laughs> not recently. No, no further questions. <laughs> and, and the only reason is Soundgarden because they are, and I'm wrecking my brain, I think the only, <laughs> that's the only band I've ever seen more than once. I've seen right. Soundgarden twice. Okay. okay. We are not the Everyone else I have only ever seen once. That's interesting. That's interesting. I don't go to answer. live music acts a lot. Live music acts. Live musical, <laughs> live musical concert gigs. Because I'm too busy living in the 1950s. <laughs> It's true. It is true. No, he yeah. stays at the milk bar. Doesn't want to go down to the hop. Yeah, it's no. It's it's not for me. It's not for me. Well, and if you favorite. count, I've seen actually the most of Soundgarden three times because if you count Audio Slave as well, at least, right? You know, a good chunk of Soundgarden are part of that. So. Surely you've seen Lonnie Donegan in in concert quite a lot, haven't you? <laughs> the Joe Loss Orchestra. <laughs> Uh, at the London Palladium of a, of a Saturday evening. Um, and of course, you haven't seen Taylor Swift yet. Not Otherwise, yet. I imagine your, your answer would be Taylor I'm, Swift. I'm, I'm fully registered. I'm waiting for the tickets to go on sale. You know, I think they, they're on sale. I think, I think you've missed it. No, I think it's I think only if fu- you pre-ordered like Midnights or something like that. You get Why haven't you pre-ordered them? though? You call yourself a Swifty and you haven't pre-ordered the album. I mean, so what the hell I are you doing? I don't tell you. Ben, Ben, Ben. Fucking Ben has early access oh, to tickets because wow. he did, in fact, pre-order. And why is he not taking you? 
That's a good question. But because you call one, him fucking Ben on yeah, the podcast. One that I will bring up with him when we get back to the office. <laughs> you oh, know, boy. You can't, um, I've looked this up, you can't fire someone mm. because you can't. they you can. bring you to a concert. I knew he was trouble when he walked in. <laughs> I believe that's Got a Taylor Swift reference. <laughs> I understood that reference. I understood that reference. We are never, ever, ever getting back together. There we go. There's another one. Um, just the, 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 hits, the hits keep on coming <laughs> on the Emperor podcast. Uh, you'll never guess who mine is. <laughs> it's, it's going to be REM, isn't it? It's, it's it's a tie probably between REM. I haven't I haven't counted that up, but obviously they haven't been touring for the last yeah. uh, twelve years. What about so Divine Comedy, Divine Comedy, quite a lot. Yes, Crowded House slash Neil Finn. If mm. you if you count up Crowded House, Neil Finn, and Finn Brothers concerts, then probably he will. He's the, the first concert I ever saw was Crowded House. Mm. Uh, oh, actually, that might that, that might be it. If we if we're allowed to count those collectively, if we're, that's we're allowed. Up there with of course we are. Of course we are. Absolutely, Neil Finn, the entity that is Neil Finn. You can, you can absolutely Neil Finn. You can, uh, you can, you can, you can count that. All right. Okay. Jeremy and I are we're like we're like two sides of the same coin. Yeah, he's yeah. the well dressed side, and... <laughs> and you're something else. You're the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's he's by George. I'm by George Master. Uh, anyway, uh, should we take a question that is even? Uh, which one do you want to do? Do you want to do the one about Ethan Hunt, or do you want to do the one about the movie you've seen most but you don't like? Ethan Hunt. I don't know what the Ethan Hunt question is. Well, the, well you're about to find out. Okay. The, the Ethan Hunt question comes from uh, podcast royalty Greg Jenner, who is the guy, uh, one of the guys behind You're Dead to Me, mm. and uh, is a contributor to Horrible Histories and a very, very good Twitterer, and I'm guessing a good threader as well, um, uh, and maybe even a good blue skyer. You can find me on all of those um, social media apps doing something. Um, anywho, anywho, his question was basically, which Bond actor would have made a good Ethan Hunt had Tom Cruise not been able to do it. So, I, so, so I are think we, we assuming take they're this, all the right age? See, I don't know if we... How, you can take this question however you want to take it. Do you take it as an actor who was in a Bond movie who would make a good Ethan Hunt or one of the, one of the Bonds? Or we can even just drop that part of the question and just speculate about who would have made a good Ethan Hunt say had Tom Cruise passed on it in 1996. Was there anyone else floating around who would have made an equally good go of it? That would have led some twenty-seven years later to, you know, Mission leaping impossible. off trains and driving off cliffs. Dash, dead reckoning, comma part two. Yeah. Yes, yes, the revenge of punctuation. I um, I can't think of anyone who would voluntarily be like strapped to the sides of planes at this point and hurling themselves off mountains mm-hmm. on motorbikes. Jim Carrey, that's, that's possibly. Possibly, possibly. <laughs> Jackie Chan, maybe. But Jackie Chan, yeah. Werner Herzog. Yes. Werner Herzog is Ethan Hunt. That'd be amazing. I am the living manifestation of destiny. I don't know. It sounds that sounds right to me. That sounds good. Yeah. What's done is done. When we say it's done, that's that's just gone into Arnie. Yeah, I know. Yeah. A little bit. Well, they they're, they're kind of they're, they're kind of you know. Well, they well you yeah, know. No. <laughs> the, the funny thing about this question, though, is that Ethan Hunt has only really been the same character from Ghost Protocol. Onwards, yeah. he's a com- like the only thing he has in common in the first three films is that Tom Cruise is playing him. This is like there is no <laughs> relationship aside from the presence of Ving Rhames between the character from the De Palma film to the John Woo film to the J.J. Abrams film. Yeah, and until there was a consistent creative voice behind the scenes, there wasn't really any attempt to do any kind of continuity. They were kind of like successive standalone films, an anthology movie, but just with the same guy. Yeah, in each one. 
I guess that that's kind of what Bond was back in the early days, right? You know, until until they started going, well, maybe Lazenby's wife can still exist in the Connery Moore continuum. We can kind of we can kind of get away with that, right? Kind of, yeah, kind of get away with that. But you're right. Like, what happened to Ethan Hunt between Mission Two and Mission Three, where he has settled down? It's just six years later, right? Mm. It's just six years between between the two films. But when you open Mission Three, he's like the old man of the IMF. Like he's retired and he's teaching other IMF agents, and he's married now or about to be married. Bites me, bites me. And uh, you know what's 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 gone on there? I wonder. There's a question for our spoiler special here about his overall timeline, which I won't get into in this context. Oh yeah, if you if any of you spoil anything about Dead Reckoning <laughs> Part 1 on this podcast, I will fucking end you. That's fair. Cool, cool. That okay, great. Um yeah, we might ask you to go out the room. Yeah. When we, we will, we're, no, we're, we're not going to spoil anything. We're going to we're going to vaguely review it when it comes up to the review section of the show because it is um it was meant to be out next week and it is still technically out next week, but I think they brought the release date forward by a couple of days here in the UK in order to try and maximize their IMAX time. I maximize. So they're I maximizing their, their time so they they uh, it's now out on Monday it's out on Monday July is that a first uh, July 10th no it's no. not a first no. No, when was the last film they did that I don't remember films have been released on Monday yeah, there definitely have been a couple but especially whenever Meerkat Mondays was a thing mm. and uh, they used to open Meerkat Mondays simples. here we go I, I, come on, that's, again. that's not Jar Jar <laughs> <laughs> and neither is this Arnold it, it is though it's a that's little bit no, this yeah. wasn't Arnold come on do it that's now that's oh. great David Attenborough that's <laughs> tremendous David Attenborough I'm so confused I need your clothes your boots and your motorcycle do you buy car insurance seatbelts <laughs> that's Ruth good that's good that. <laughs> Misa begging you please let's move on uh, Timothy Dalton Timothy Dalton Jeremy thank <laughs> man- you Timothy Dalton. Well, Timothy Dalton could do everything, can't he? They're great, they're good. Timothy Dalton, he'd be a he'd be a harder edge, Ethan Hunt. It feels like, and equally, then Piers Brosnan would be a, you know, oh Bronholm, Bronholm. But he'd be he'd be a suaver, Ethan mm. Hunt. I don't see him actually wrinkling his suit enough, you know, to climb out the outside of buildings. So we're such. we're dropping them all in to Ethan Hunt, uh, aged thirty. Right? Why not? Yeah, roughly there, yeah. So Connery dropped in 30 with yeah. his his wig. I tell you who I think could genuinely have done it. Roger not, not a Bond actor. Oh, not a Bond actor. No. Okay. I think Brad Pitt could have done it. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think? Had- I, don't, I don't think he was particularly interested in having a <laughs> franchise. But then I'm not sure that, you know, that, that Cruz anticipated this. I don't think if you'd ask Cruz... He would. Are you still going to be doing this in 2023? I think he would have laughed at you. Mm. So I'm uh, not sure what I mean. I think he'd, been, he'd have been more surprised if you demonstrated what exactly he would be doing in 2023. <laughs> I think he might have been. He'd have been like, what? Or he might have been really fired up by it. Yeah. Like, yes. Considering that in the De Palma film, the most unbelievable thing in it was that they had seamless full motion streaming video on Netscape Navigator <laughs> 3.11. But, uh, you know. That's certainly the thing that sticks out for me. Yeah. I do love the yeah. biggest stunt in the first mission. I mean, obviously there's that, that bit towards the end with uh, with the David Schneider, you know, where they, they're, on the, they're on the Eurostar. Uh, but the biggest stunt otherwise is leaping away from an exploding fish tank. That's, <laughs> That's the biggest thing he does in that. And nowadays, that's what he does just in the mornings for shits and giggles. It's true. He wakes up in the morning, he throws exploding chewing gum at a fish tank and then leaps away from it. And then he has his breakfast and then he straps himself to a plane and then he ties himself to the tracks of a train and lets a train run over him. And then it's at Levinson's 
<laughs> then it's a rattlesnake down the pants. <laughs> then he hitches a ride on the moon. And then it's lunch. You feel like... You've got to keep your you know, ex- exercise going somehow. you got to keep it going. He wouldn't still be... Like that thing about would he thought he would still be doing it at this point. I don't think he would necessarily without mm. Macquarie coming into the picture and that relationship that they have developed and this the way these movies have become in a sense about the way they view the process of making movies and they're this kind of metaphor for their the thing Macquarie always says about they have a long conversation about cinema that's occasionally interrupted by production Mm -hmm. and Hunt has become such a you know there's that thing of people talking about actors playing themselves and they normally meet in a pejorative way but I feel like Ethan Hunt has become such a reflection of Cruz's determination and like Tom Cruise, the producer, is being represented by Ethan yeah. Hunt, the character. Not necessarily Tom Cruise, the actor, but Tom Cruise, the the filmmaker. The guy who will do anything to entertain an audience. Yeah. Mm. That's Ethan Hunt. And I think the difference is Tom Cruise does it because he wants to, Ethan Hunt does it because he has to. Yeah. Yep. I, I very, very much agree with that. Um Shall we take a quick look at films that came out in 1996 and see if there is anyone who springs to mind? Sure. All right, so I'm looking at the uh, the box office from 1996, the domestic box office from 1996. Number one, that year was Independence Day. So, come on. Will Smith. Will Smith. We're all thinking it. Or Harry Connick Jr. Or Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum would have been an interesting... <laughs> An interesting <laughs> Ethan Hunt. Um, amazing Ethan Hunt. Yeah. If he was in... Like, Jeff Goldblum... In Independence Day mode, you know? Uh, uh, eventually you do plan to have some uh, uh, impossible missions in your uh, uh, Mission Impossible <laughs> movie. Uh, so, yeah, Will Smith might have been a good one. Will Smith would have Will been Smith, a good one. Will Smith, I think. Yeah, yeah he could he have was been very indefatigable. Focused, he was very focused on kind of sci-fi at that point in his career, wasn't he, really? So, did he go straight on to MIB? Uh, yes, indeed, he did. He'd done that, like, algorithmic thing where yeah. he'd sat down and figured out the triangulation of all the different things that crossed into the most financially successful movies and there was a, a sci-fi component, right? And that's yeah. why he was so focused on that. Exactly. Um, Twister was number two at the box office that year. So, you know, Bill Paxton, um, maybe. You know, Carrie Elwes. Carrie Elwes in the Mission no. Impossible movie? That would never <laughs> work. That would never work, no. Uh, Keanu Reeves, because Chain Reaction. Who can forget Chain Reaction came out that year? Diana Ross's favourite film. That's right. Even I have pretty much forgotten Chain Reaction. I it's like got that great bit where he rides away from the exploding thing with, yeah. with Rachel, Rachel Weisz Rachel on the back. Rachel Weisz. I think, I think he, I mean, he he did come to my mind as well. He was, he was mm. somebody I was thinking of when we started thinking about this question because, uh, again, he's still doing very good action. Yep. He's still doing a lot of it himself. Yes. Um, and he has the kind of and I say this with the greatest of respect to both men, the, the sort of stoic blankness of <laughs> Ethan Hunt. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He's sort of, he's a guy who's more about the mission than about, you know, oh, his mum did something nasty to him when he was three and now he can't mm. look at a banana without getting upset. You know, there's none of that really with Ethan Hunt. He's just got a mission to do and he's going to do it. Also, he could pull off the MI2 floppy hair quite well. Oh mm. my God, so well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. You know, we can't actually make this happen, right? Okay, okay is, I know, but like, that's just, this, this. It's just throwing me back to like excellent adventure hair, which is like yeah. peak Keanu hair. Oh, imagine that. Is it? Yes. I'm not sure about that. Uh, for me, it is. Okay. Uh, one of us fancies men here, Chris, and it's not you. So, like, you know. If we're talking about people who were action stars in 1996, Nicolas Cage? Yes. No. 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 <laughs> no. That is- Nicolas Speed. Uh, 
That you know what else came out in 96, though, don't you? What's that? Michael Collins. Oh, I'm still. Oh, Big Liam. Big Liam. The tripod. The tripod. <laughs> could have been. Could have been Ethan Hunt. On the plus side, that well, no, that's more of a downside because if he was dangling from the ceiling, you know, he'd have set off the alarm, wouldn't he? He would have done more of an impossible emission. <laughs> oh no! Come on, come on, <laughs> come on now. Here's the thing: in 1996, the Good Friday Agreement was brand new. No one's going to block by a Northern Irishman as the you know. It wasn't even brand new. Somebody at that who point. could be trusted to save the world. It was in 96. Oh, in 96. It? Yeah. it was 97. 97 was the Good Friday Agreement. Okay, fine. Yeah. Well, well done, me for remembering. My point being. No one's going to trust a Northern Irishman to save the world. <laughs> uh, I'm trying one podcast at a time. Uh, uh, I'm just going to throw some names out here. That's gender flip. It's Sandra Bullock, Sandy B. Yeah, yeah, she could do it. She's still she's still doing it. She's still doing her action hero thing. Uh, some years later, uh, Eddie Murphy, the Nutty Professor. Eddie Murphy playing all the parts. Do you know what? It would have been really interesting to see him do it. That'd be kind of cool. See him do a straight action film. He did. He tried and it didn't work. Which one? Metro. Oh, yeah. Amongst others. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. true. Didn't okay. work. Fine. You mentioned Nick Cage, who obviously has form in taking off faces. But John Travolta had <laughs> uh, had broken arrow out this year. And I think Phenomenon as well, actually, that year. Phenomenal. So they would both be good for that particular reason. Or, frankly, that brings us back to Big Liam. Because, you know, Dark Man. Yes. Why are you obsessed with Big Liam? Why are you Who not obsessed, obsessed, with, Big obsessed with Big Liam? Have you seen Big Liam? <laughs> I love Big Liam. Walk around just, him. You know, <laughs> oh, have to make a detour at <laughs> a certain point. But uh, but yeah, Big Liam. Uh, James has absolutely hit upon my pet theory that every movie since Darkman yep. is actually a Darkman sequel starring Liam Neeson as Dr. Peyton Westlake. We just don't know it. So therefore, Liam Neeson has been playing Tom Cruise <laughs> since 1996. There you go. That's the, your answer. The original DCEU, the Darkman cinematic extension. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely true. Oh, Dr. Peyton Westlake. Oh, dear. Oh, what a man. What a man. What a dark man. Uh, right. I think that's it. That is it. That was a good question. Mm. I think we, we, we did well there. Oh, Beaver a butthead <laughs> um, anyway just looking through the rest Happy Gilmore Ghost in the Darkness Set It Off Heat Val oh. Kilmer Val Kilmer Val Kilmer instead Val of this being Kilmer. Batman and the Saint he could have been Ethan Hunt I mean he does have he does have intensity Pacino no oh okay this is an impossible mission what's done is done when we say it's done oh that was like Arnie again. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, I thought that was Werner Herzog. I thought you're, I think your Barbra Streisand is really coming <laughs> Okay. Simples. My name is Alexander Euler. Uh, all right. Okay. If you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast, Twitter is still the only game in town, despite my proliferation of social media accounts. I'm on Blue Sky. I'm on Threads. I'm on TikTok but not really. I'm on other things as well, but I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. And if you are still on Twitter, <laughs> well done, join me. We're not the ones who made it terrible. We're not the ones who should fuck off. <laughs> All right? Basically, what was the analogy you said you were it's, discussing at what, lunch? The way you were talking about that is like an office space with office the guy space, Michael Bolton yes. going, why should I change my name? He's the yes. one who sucks. And then Jeremy came up with another good analogy as well. Well, it? yes. Um, we're not stuck in here with you. You're stuck in here with us. Yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. So uh, your move, Musk, uh, is what I'm going to say on that one. But uh, if you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast, you can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. Slide into my DMs or reply to a panicked shout out. Or you can reply to any of my tweets 
once you, if you can see them, <laughs> that is, oh, uh, once you pay £8 a month, you can see them. Uh, and once you've stopped laughing, of course. Hey, listen, should we have a guest? Sure. And shall we have that guest be mission-centric? Ooh. Because Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is out on Monday, July 10th in this country. Go see it on the biggest IMAX screen you can possibly find. Jeremy, when you seeing it? Uh, I'm seeing it on the 28th, the Universal City Walk IMAX in Los Angeles. Oh my God, you're going to have to do the, this spoiler dance for a long, long time. I have a lot of things muted on Twitter. I may go full like Todd Vizieri. I might just get off Twitter until I see it and then also avoid any conversations with anybody. Yeah, that seems about right. <laughs> People live in a cave. Put my noise cancelling headphones in and sit in a dark room. It generally works for me. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's a that's a bold bold gambit. That's that's if it pays off. Um, but yes, should we have Hayley Atwell? I, this is the one I announced, right? Yeah, let's do it. Because yeah. we've got Simon Pegg and Rebecca Ferguson together, but we also have Hayley Atwell. Hayley Atwell is new to this franchise, but of course not new to our consciousness or indeed our hearts, uh, because she captured them with her incredible turn as Peggy Carter in Captain America, Woo! the first Avenger, and then sundry other MCU projects. And uh, we spoke a little bit about that. We spoke a little bit about being on set of the first Cap um, at the same time. She was in it, I believe, and I was there to, to gawk. Mm. And she's now playing Grace, who is a mysterious newcomer to the uh, Mission Impossible franchise in Dead Reckoning Part 1. She gets caught up in all kinds of shenanigans with uh, Nicholas Cage's Ethan Hunt and, uh, sorry, sorry, Dr. Peyton Westlake's Ethan Hunt. <laughs> and uh, she is fantastic in this movie. Uh, it is a movie star making turn and uh, I had a lot of fun talking to her in a London hotel room not two weeks ago. So here we go. Me talking to Hayley Atwell. Do please enjoy. Welcome to the Opera Podcast. Hayley Atwell, how are you? I'm very well, sir. Good to see you. Likewise, likewise. Uh, how has it been so far? I mean, you're, you're a few days in now. People are seeing the movie. Yeah, Good a few reactions. days in. Oh, yeah. It feels like someone asked me what it was like on the red carpet the other day in Rome uh, at the first premiere we did. And I just went, you know what? It's like a delicious exhale because it's been, what, three and a half years in the yeah. making for me from when I came on board and started training for it. And yeah. obviously, you know, this movie is always intended for the service of the audience. And so yes. it's it belongs in the hands and the eyes of the audience. And so finally to be able to deliver it is where it belongs, you know, out there in the world is 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 so, so satisfying. And people are finally getting to figure out who Grace is. <laughs> They're getting to meet her. Yeah. As well, which is interesting because, you know, because you have essentially had to figure out who she was. Yeah, I, I didn't know until I sat down and watched it for the first time myself. <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. I tried so many different things in different takes. I was like, I wonder which version they're going to take. Which version has worked, you know? What did you know going into day one about your character choices? Um, that it was always going to be up for grabs. Right. That if... I offered something that they that they liked that the, the camera picked up that the film tended to seem to want, mm -hmm. then they would use it, and that there was no such thing as a wrong, right or wrong, or good or bad. There's no judgment. There were just going to be choices, and we'd work it out as we went along as to what that character would be and what her story would be. So really, it was my job to turn up every day and be present to it and see what felt in the moment real and instinctive. Because you could come at it in a million different ways. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. in terms of accent, did you know she's British in the film? But did you did you do okay, McHugh? I'm going to do a take where she's Texan, or <laughs> was it very much? It was not so much Texan. It was it wasn't a sort of a literal. I, I've come in with a limp today. Uh, she's definitely a hunchback on I Wednesday. I think the parrot. The parrot really works it, in this scene. It, it, <laughs> 
yeah. I'm be just perches so on I my shoulder. I claimed that the parrot still does. I don't know why they cut it. Um, yeah, the, the main thing was sort of weave into this in the screen test because they'd said in the screen test, you know, we're looking for an actor that we want to work with first and foremost, and then we will together create this character over time. That's and, amazing. And by putting the character in certain pressured situations, um, it, the character through pressure is going to reveal who it is, you know. So what I was trying in different takes was um, kind of level of competence how skilled is she in this moment? How much self-assurance or self-doubt is she going to have? How brave can she be or vulnerable or overwhelmed? Mm. Or um, are there ones where she's just having the greatest fun ever because she has no idea actually just this, the level of the danger that she's in? And so there was sort of a playfulness in the way I was playing her, trying lots of different things yeah. that, of course, ended up making her playful. Yeah. And, you know, when they talk about mission, they always say, you know, a Mission Impossible movie is a metaphor for the making of a Mission Impossible movie. Yes, <laughs> very much true. so. Very much so. Yeah, I love that idea that you you go into it and you don't really know. Mm. You're figuring it as you go. You've got a lot of road mm. to go. What sort of conversations did you have with McHugh about that? A lot of our conversations came through the movies that he was suggesting that I watch, and Tom Ooh. too. So Such we as? watched things like What's Up Doc, uh, the really? Tom's Crown Affair, interesting Paper Moon, The Sting. Okay. There was this whole uh, whole period of time where in, in a lot of takes, we do the sting, a nod to the sting with that, like, you know, the, the touch of the finger on the end of the nose at uh -huh. each other as like a, hey, I see you, I got you. And then I think later on in the edit, they felt that it, it made her look too calculating and it made her look like she was enjoying causing him suffering. And we, <laughs> we like her less because of that. Um so, you know, we, little things like that, which was, you know, like the the um, Zippo lighter, you yeah. know, that's a, a lot of these things are kind of homage to moments in film that Tom and McHugh love. We watched Shane and Lawrence of Arabia and broadcast news and ordinary people and uh, His Girl Friday, the original wow. Thomas Crown Affair. And I mean, that's what they do anyway on any given day. And so I naturally kind of just partook in it and had a great time but it meant that on set I was starting to understand a language that they had and a sort of a, uh, a shorthand with I them. was going to say how does that seep into your character when you're on set you go okay okay all right oh, now I get it. this is a his girl Friday moment or this is a what's up doc moment or well yeah I mean what's up doc was a great reference because it, you know if if we were trying a take where she seemed to delight too much in what she was doing or to um intentionally make life hard for him or anyone that's 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 not barbara streisand's character barbara yeah. streisand's character is sort of an, an agent of chaos and causes carnage without intending to mm -hmm. and so you know she'll walk across the street and the cars behind her will crash into each other mm -hmm. but she's oblivious to it and there's a sort of there's an endearing quality about that and so we were looking at ways that either my well, that, that either grace or ethan could have that sense of um wholesome kind of unknowing and uh things are kind of going to happen in spite of themselves yeah um and so, you know, when it came to the Fiat 500, I mean, that's, yeah. you know, a lot of those those early comedies that were watching, that that all kind of manifested through the, the, the gag of the fact that Ethan Hunt, of all things, is undermined by a Fiat 500. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, how his premature starting of the engine, shall we say, it immediately, happens to all, men, it happens to all of us. <laughs> 
ends with a crashing of a car and, and yeah. her going, it's okay, it's okay, it's all right, it's going to be fine, let's go. This has never happened to me before. Yeah. <laughs> he's so good, he's so good, he's so funny. Uh, and that was a, that was a how, should we say, how should we say, can we phrase this, that was an a, a improv from Tom, I yeah. believe, that was an ad lib. It was an ad lib, yeah. <laughs> it was brilliant. And, you know, also there were times when I, I was in the BMW um, right. and there was a whole sequence where I was drifting and um, Tom would be obviously in the passenger seat, which yeah. is somewhere metaphorically and literally he is not his favorite place to be, as you can yes. imagine, right? Yeah. But but how, you know, how generous he is as an actor of going, ceding power and going, I, I want you to be the one that's in control of the wheel here. Yes. Um, and as an actor, that you know that requires a lot of trust between two people and also being handcuffed. And so there would be times when on action, he'd be like, you know, stop, 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 stop. And I'd have to work out whether Tom was asking Haley to stop because yeah. it was actually dangerous, yeah. whether Ethan was telling Grace to stop, in which case Grace didn't have to because she might want not, she wanted me to take a left instead. <laughs> or whether Tom was suggesting a line for Grace to say, in which case I would have to be the one going stop, 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 stop. And that was so fun because you're, you're, you're. I'm for me, I'm firing in all cylinders. And when there's that much level of intensity and pressure, you've got no time to analyze or be self-conscious. You're just living in the moment. And you know what? It's exhilarating. Wow, did you guys figure out the system? Were there safe words in, in place in a way? Whiskey, if Tom says whiskey, that means <laughs> it's Tom. Yeah, it, no. <laughs> I think by that point, it, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of trust that goes into when you're working with people on set, and that's between the actors, but also with the crew yeah. and with the stunt team as well. So by the time that we'd gotten to Rome, I'd had five months of training with Wade Eastwood and drifting. So all that seat time had allowed me to also get to know Wade and for Wade also to get to understand my stubbornness, um, <laughs> my just kind of, you know, um, how I responded to direction and if certain styles of direction deemed better results for him, he would then, you know, know how in the future to push me harder. Um so again, by the time we were on set, there was a shorthand, which is yeah. so important to establish, which is why in that five months, we did a lot of work and watching movies together, hanging out together. McHugh and Tom would listen to my natural rhythms when I spoke. They'd try and find out where my comedy bone was and where it wasn't. And you know, from that, you're, you're collaborating. <laughs> where is your comedy bone? Goofball. <laughs> Accidental goofball. Uh, I'm not funny when I'm trying to be. Okay. Uh, no, uh, it, it sort of has to come as a kind of I've distracted myself uh, from even trying to be funny, and it just kind of sort of happens almost like a sneeze. Um, is, that, is that always been the case? <laughs> I I'd say my friends would say so that, that I've always been a goof. Okay. Yeah. All right. The accidental funny thing. That's that's a, that's the thing. Yeah, clumsy okay. falling into something. You know <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, McHugh said uh, of Grace, he told me that she is a character who essentially has no business being in a Mission Impossible movie and is trying desperately to get out of being in one. Mm. Mm. Was that was that again something that he that you discussed with him as a. A motivation for her? Like, what the fuck am I doing in this film? Yeah, it might have come from the fact that when I was having a conversation with him about this, I was just wrapping up um, being on stage in 
Erasmus Home by Henrik Ibsen <laughs> at the Duke of York's. And I was wearing a corset every day. And I was probably speaking in that sort of booming projector voice that I had, you know, built myself up to. So I get 100 shows out of me every night. Uh, not 100 times a night, but... 100, 100 shows a night is a hell of a thing. It's a hell of a... That's kind of that Kate Blanchett level, probably, yes. of, of mastery. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think... I'm not the kind of obvious choice for an action thing, you know, and I think they liked that. I think what they saw was my discipline and my work ethic and my interest and excitement to work in this process in this way with them, knowing that it's going to be intense. And could I match that intensity? And could I hold Tom's gaze and go, wow, this feels great, as opposed to going, oh my God, Tom. <laughs> you know, uh, which I, means I wouldn't get very far, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that was obviously, oh yeah, I could do this. But then in terms of character, you know, I'm not um, trained in a particular sexy style of, of fighting. I don't have any formal training in those things. So I don't have any action talents per se. Um, but I, I always can always give it a go and I'm pretty fearless. And so they were like, yeah, okay, well, she's not, she, she's this sort of the artful dodger and this agent of chaos that's always ducking and diving. And we did talk about, you know, as an actor, I think one of the thing that's very sort of common with actors is that we're, we're good adapters. Mm-hmm. We can, we're having to move from one job to the next and break the ice and you've met someone and five minutes later you're rehearsing as your husband and wife and you've yeah. been best friends for all your life. So to be able to be quite chameleonic and quite flexible and can pivot and quickly or take a note in a direction that's very different from what you've been doing and, and to kind of rewire your brain in that moment to try something completely new. That that thing, I think, uh, ended up coming out in the quality of who Grace ended up being. So did, um, I mean, you said that you, you're, you're, uh, you didn't particularly have a lot of uh, action experience, but but Peggy Carter could handle herself. A few punches. Yeah. A few punches from time to time. Yeah. Did uh, did your MCU experience stand you in good stead at all on, on this? Yeah, that did. Um, that did because I was, you know, again, there was some great, great stunt team people working with that. You know, it's such an accomplished franchise and they are, they can really deliver. And, um, you know, I, I I, I I love my time working with Marvel. I I love how passionate they are about their again their audience and their stories and that whole world and how it expands and mm. implodes and creates new parallel worlds at the same time. It's just mm-hmm. such an epic fantasy thing. Um, I think, but also you know when I when I studied at classical theatre at drama school, a lot of the movement classes were about um, understanding what the neutral body is. You know what with the Alexander technique in particular, you're learning about kind of posture and alignment and where... Oh, um, then I'm screwed. <laughs> dude, I, by the way you're sitting right now, I'm worried for you. <laughs> I know you can't see this, guys, but his head is... His ass is where his head should be. It's... It's, <laughs> it's, it's terrible. It's like the end of society. It's, it's absolutely it's, bizarre, <laughs> the way that you're sitting. Um, but you create this, like neutral body whereby then you can go okay my character center of gravity is is now more in my shoulder because they're slumped over because they're in front of a desk all day so that changes maybe my posture or the way that I walk or if I'm someone that wears high heels all the time my feet might be sore at the end of it so how does she walk when she's barefoot there's little things like that and you take the principles of that sort of training into stunt work as well because it's choreographed 
like a dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're working out, okay, if she's a thief and an opportunist and hypervigilant and a lone wolf, then she's probably learnt on the job as opposed to have received any formal training. So maybe her fighting style is a bit scrappy and a bit like she just, she goes for it and she's learnt a few tricks along the way, but... But she's not hyper-trained. Yeah. She's not... Yeah. And yeah. It be- it's a nice way to begin for an origin story for her because it gives us somewhere to go. Um, I Talking about Peggy has just uh, brought to mind a, a memory. I was on set of The First Avenger and Manchester... Hmm. Nearly 13 years ago Stop now, Haley, which is. Stop it. It's disgusting. How is that possible? <laughs> First of all, disgusting. it was a scene where you run into the street and the car is driving straight at you and you, you're firing at the car. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and I think Steve pushes you out of the way or, oh, or yeah, jumps and grabs really you angry. out of the way. She's like, I, yeah. I had him. Yeah. 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 yeah that that yeah. scene. That scene. So. Um, that memory's just come to me. I mean, what are your memories of of that particular day? Cast your mind all yeah. the way back. I remember that day because you know, in that moment, Captain America's barefoot, so he runs down that. He had street. his Hobbit feet on, didn't he? But he had the Hobbit feet he on, the, the plastic feet. Hobbit feet yeah. on. So I remember being in the green room in between takes, wearing the Hobbit feet. <laughs> <laughs> There's a picture somewhere. Um, I was thinking they were fantastic. <laughs> Roomy, comfortable, warm. Yeah, what, what were they? Quite like you know, rubbery, quite solid. Yes. Um, speckled. I like the fact that they looked like a proper skin tone. They weren't all just one color. It they wasn't like it was dappled. There was detail. There was detail. I remember. There was shadow. Yeah. There was hair and veins. I didn't get to try them on, but I I, I was staring at them because I spoke to Chris that day as well, and it wasn't an amorphous blob it wasn't like someone had just welded two shoe boxes to his feet defined, there was def- there was definition mm-hmm. there for sure yeah beautiful, beautiful so i love that your memory of that day is not something you did but but really chris Me Evans. wearing his feet <laughs> yes <laughs> i wore chris's feet <laughs> this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship as they say amazing amazing and then and then obviously on social media you have been teasing recently because you did that that thing what was the thing called i can't remember the, the thing where you mimed oh dub smash app. that's it dub yeah, smash that was popular quite a few years ago wasn't yeah. it 2015 i think yeah uh you've been you've been teasing oh, yeah. content like that again on your instagram the TikTok. Yeah, the TikToks and whatnot. <laughs> the TikTok. The TikTok. The World Wide Web. <laughs> the TikTok. What? God. Was that Brian Butterfield by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> That's someone who was old enough to wince at the fact that 13 years ago she was an adult, yeah. you know, uh, on, on another set. Yeah. Yes, carry Different on. Time. But the, t- the TikTok. I was just saying, are you bringing that stuff back? Bring it back. Bring back the TikTok. I'm Bring back I'm the... teasing. I'm seeing. You know what I'm doing? I'm dipping my toe. I'm dipping my hobbit foot in <laughs> to see whether it's something that people want. Because I kind of feel like give the people what they want. So this is just a little test. There might be a lot of people go, you know what? We really don't need to see you do that anymore. I think I think it's um, important. It's art. It's art. Well, also, I feel like I can on Instagram, I can be more like, hi, I'm Hayley Atwell. <laughs> People call me Haley Actwell. Um, and then on TikTok, I can be Lady Twatwell. That's good. And yeah. just have a giggle and, like and be a bit of a goof, yeah. right? It's good to have a balance. Atwell by name, Actwell by nature. <laughs> there you go. That's um, the one. All's well um, as Atwell. <laughs> all I can say is Haley Actwell. Strap on the hobbit feet and get out of here. And off she goes. Off she goes into the distance. <laughs> into the TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> one must TikTok. So that the kids say these days, one must TikTok. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you so much.
All right, so that was Hayley Outwell. And next week, we will be joined by Simon Pegg and Rebecca Ferguson, who are an excellent double act if you're <laughs> booking for Panto this year. I would, I would hardly recommend it. I would, I, would, so, I would totally go and see that, by the way. Oh, no, you wouldn't. Thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> I was hoping that would happen. Uh, yeah, it is. It is they are proper good together. Anywho, movie news time. What has been happening in the world of movie news? Yeah! Oh, Jesus Dude. Christ. <laughs> we very nearly hopped on to record a special Dune post-game analysis when this, because this dropped literally post-game as we were recording analysis. last yeah. week's podcast. Yeah. But we were so disorganized, we couldn't get back on to do a, a, like a pickup. Look, we, but, we have other work, to be fair. But yeah, yeah. But we also, were. I feel like we had to wait at least a week for the kind of screaming to die down. Yeah, for, it, w- for it us would to, have been incoherent Yeah, screaming. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, just on Chris's part. Fucking hell of a trailer, isn't it? I mean, really how would that be different from what you just did? It's fair. It's fair. But honestly, like this, it's, I mean, it kind of, it emphasizes the fact that what, what Helen and I being smug book readers knew and most people probably suspected is that the first film is largely setting the pieces on the board. I read about it in a book. Indeed. <laughs> and all the shit kicks off in Dune Part 2. And kick off it does. We see... Christopher Walken as the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV. We see Florence Pugh, who dies in a hail of bullets as Princess Irulan. Uh, so much stuff in here. Uh, it, you know, also this the whole the whole of uh, of, of Dune was foretold in you know, lest we forget Mark Lester's commando special. when Arnie, obviously thinking of Zendaya's character, went Chani. See, that was that. Oh that's, boy, that's, that was that was good. Jenny, yeah, Jenny, Jenny. That's right. You have succumbed no, no, once no. again to the darkness oh, no. that sweeps across the human heart. I, do you know what? He'd have made a good emperor. He would have. He would have made a good. I mean, Walken will be brilliant, but that's all. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, loads of stuff. Not so much worm action in this particular trailer, but that's fine because we got worm action in the last one. That's true. But um, yeah, but and yeah, I think they're they're emphasising there are things in this other. Than giant Don't be worms. Ridiculous, Helen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but this has a bit of emotion. It has you know the reunion Total with um, yeah uh, with Gurney Halleck. It has uh, it has Javier Bardem's character kind of slowly be won over. We're seeing by Paul Atreides. Uh, this is for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about. First of all, go and watch Dune. Second of all, basically, son and mother you know, had to run off into the desert last time. They're now living uh, with the Fremen people in the desert and figuring out a way. Yes. And figuring out a way to take the war back to the very, very bad, nasty, evil Harkonnen. You can tell because they're all bald. I mean, which is, I mean, yes, James, what what is it that you want to tell me about the Harkonnen exactly? Pale and bald, all of them. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. I genuinely, I was saying to Chris over lunch, I, I have a weird face blindness issue with Austin Butler in this film. Without hair, I cannot reconcile the face I see in this trailer with the Austin Butler face with which I am familiar. I don't I, think that's face blindness. I think that's he genuinely looks unrecognisable. He genuinely is, maybe he's he's genuinely a different person. Like, I, I don't understand how the two line up in the slightest. You'll know when he opens his mouth and he goes, well, very, very much to Paul Atreides. It's nice to be here. <laughs> Thank you very much. Because he's got the yeah, office. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, and so, <laughs> yeah, it looks, it looks incredible. Arrakis looks incredible. It looks uh, exciting. I think we're seeing nukes there against the shield wall I'm just saying it's I'm super hyped but super hyped for nuclear surprising has some no mad way. outfits <laughs> so many mad outfits yeah. so many pieces of jewellery used as face coverings yeah oh it's it's I'm wild super into it uh, it's wild Jeremy are you a, a Dune fan 
Yeah, I'm, yes, I haven't read the books, but I saw Dune Reckoning Part 1 in, in the, <laughs> the IMAX in Nashville. I, I had a funny experience with it because um, it got to what felt like the climactic end of the film. Screen went black and then... The, and then there's a, without going into spoilers, there's a explosive moment. And, and then the lights came up and I went, wow, what a swing. Like Villeneuve's really gone for just like go out on the biggest cliffhanger in the whole movie, no ending credits, you know, everyone can just go to IMDb. <laughs> and then you like have to wait, you know, two years for the next part. And then at a certain point I realized, oh, actually the projector stopped working. So I had to go <laughs> home and watch the last 10 minutes on HBO Max as it was at the time. Which, Wow, which, as, as Denis intended. Yeah, yeah. It's, you, you really do feel the, it's to go from uh, watching something in IMAX to watching the last 10 minutes of it on your laptop, you really do feel the difference between those formats. <laughs> <laughs> Nolan is right. Um, <laughs> that's extraordinary. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a good trailer. I can't remember it. I only saw it once. You're a oh, Chris. Oh. James immediately uploaded it to Pornhub. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, spicy. It, it looks, spicy. The, the, spice, spicy. the spice did flow. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it is very exciting. Well done, everybody. Yeah. Uh, Atreides, across the Atreides verse, is coming uh, in. When's it? October, November? November, I believe. November. Yeah. That's exciting. That's exciting. Well done, everybody. It's going to be a Timmy run up to Christmas with. It's uh, going to be a Timmy June, two meets. June, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. June part two and then. Wonka part one. Wonka part one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that'll be an exciting couple of months. Oompa Loompa Boogaloo. Uh, did you see? Now. Are you allowed to talk about what you saw yesterday? No. no? Not okay. Yet. Helen saw week. something of, of Wonka yesterday, but she can't talk about it, which begs the question why the fuck did they show it to you? <laughs> Crucially, though, if you went to a Wonka event, did, you, did they give you chocolate? Yeah. Okay, good. If I went to Did you fall into a chocolate river? Yeah, did you? No. Did you eat one of those? I dived. Uh, yeah. What was it, the, the gobstopper that has the... the Everlasting gobstopper. The, the one no, with the, the different three, flavors? The three, the three, three course, course meal. meal. The three course meal. That's the one I've always wanted. What? So it's just like Nando's, Nando's, and Nando's. Yes. Like, it goes from it goes from like lemon and herb through medium to hot. Start with the half chicken, yeah. and then my main is the butterfly chicken, and then I, I finish frog. off the crunchy frog. <laughs> uh, here's an amazing story. Uh, this is on comingsoon.net. Uh, obviously, I get all my news from empireonline.com, um, but in this case, I'm on comingsoon.net. James Gunn reveals one song that won't be in Superman Legacy. <laughs> wow. And I hope that this is a start of a great runner, <laughs> that every week James Gunn reveals another song that won't be in Superman and eventually, by a process of elimination, we will work out the only songs that are left that could possibly yeah. be in Superman Legacy. This week it's Closer by Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> Next week. So I'm just clicking on this. Uh, the headline just tickled me immensely. So the, uh, the story, which I can't click on because of the frankly shocking Wi-Fi in this building. Uh, finally, we here, here we are. So you see, he's on Blue Sky and he's very active on he Blue is, Sky. Yes. And people can literally just ask him shit and he will respond on Blue Sky. A fan asked Gunn, what Superman-related songs would appear in the film asking if he would use Kryptonite by Three Doors Down? Gunn said, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and someone went, that is a news story. I... Yeah, okay. but here we are talking about it. Yeah, so, yeah uh, anything, anything else? Any there actual are a news? few other things. So there was this massive story that went up on the New Yorker about Mattel, who of course are the toy company that own Barbie. And in this story, they revealed a couple of things. They revealed number one that they are working to develop um, films based on something like a forty-five different toys or games that they own, most of which sound wildly unlikely to happen. In fairness, I own 45 different toys and games. Okay, but 
they own the copyright and the, the IP to 25, ah, okay. 48, five different Touché. fighting games. Um, so, the, you know, literally things like um, there's a, a, an obscure old astronaut toy that was one of the inspirations for Buzz Lightyear that I think has a Kiva Goldsman and Tom Hanks attached. Now, can we think of a reason why Tom Hanks might not end up making a film about a space ranger? Anywho, but that's that's one of the things that are, that's kind of floating around out there. One that is apparently happening is the Daniel Kaluuya making a Barney the Dinosaur movie, which I, I think is an amazing idea, and I can't wait to see what, what that is. People went nuts about this. Oh my God, is this the end of cinema? It's like, yes, yes it is. If they all got made, yes it would be, but they won't, so we don't need to worry about that. The other thing that was revealed in passing in this story is the news that um, as well as making the Barbie movie, uh, Greta Gerwig is also planning to make two Narnia movies for Netflix. We don't know which two of the books. We don't know what she's planning to do. With I mean, them. we don't know which two of the books or wardrobe two of the books or <laughs> hey. lion two of the books. Very good. It's got to be lion and witch and wardrobe. You, you wouldn't, I mean, the other ones are not that Well, you yeah, could you start could, with The Magician's Nephew, could couldn't you? could start with The Magician's Nephew, I wouldn't, but you could. <laughs> you shouldn't. You shouldn't. But even if you do, if she's making two, the next one will then be The Lion, the Witch, the, the Wardrobe. You, so. could, you could try to de-problemify hmm. the, the horse and his boy. Maybe they could uh, adapt the last one. The because last it, battle. The last, the last make it the battle. first battle. Where, where all our heroes, and I'm not making this up, die in a train crash. In a hail of bullets. Go, and, in a hail of bullets uh, and go to meet Jesus, essentially. That's, 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 uh, I'm not making it up. Slight that correction. Is the, that Jesus is correction. Yep. Susan doesn't go to meet Jesus. Because she she's goes to meet the into, devil. Because she's too into lipstick and tights. All right. So she goes to hell. That is the implication. And dies in a hail of brimstone. But I'm not making it up. That is legitimately how the last battle ends with our heroes that we've been invested in for, you know, most of seven books fucking dying in a train crash and going to heaven slash purgatory slash yeah. um, Devon. But in fairness, like the entire series is a Christian allegory. It this is, is yes, very but I know, but well established. He really leans into it towards the end. Yeah. Like, You'd have to do another that because that's Infinity War with no end game. <laughs> You'd have to do their end game after that. <laughs> I, I, but I do want to see that, you know, a guest starring Jesus as Aslan. <laughs> I want to see that credit at the end. That's that. It's wild to me. I mean, yeah. you know, trying to tell that to your kids. Like, let's be honest. It's it, you're right. It is going to be the the line, the witch, and the wardrobe, which is you know an incredible story. Um, and I'm fasc fascinated to see what she does with it. So yeah. fingers crossed for greatness. In hot crossover news, Ethan Hunt is on that train. <gasps> then it won't crash after with all. Kittredge. <laughs> and that's finally why Kittredge sees Ethan very upset. Uh, anyway, that's exciting. But film Twitter, as is his wont, has been up in arms about this and has been denouncing Greta Gerwig because, because. apparently, uh, because apparently, you know, this is uh, I, I further proof uh, that Hollywood is running out of ideas and that filmmakers can't get movies made that they want to make. So therefore, they make the the, you know, the next big slice of IP and they they don't consider for a second that this is something that Greta Gerwig actually would like to do I, as I a mean, filmmaker. I'm not sure we need it. If I'm honest with you, I'm not sure we, we don't need it. any film. No, I'm not sure. We well, need we June, do, We do Chris. need films. We need June. Yeah, we do you need do. June. We're, no, I, we do need films in general. We do need original films specifically. But, it, it, you know, if you're going to adapt something, there are worse things to adapt than The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. You know, a generational classic that is still beloved and still very potent and which could probably do with a bit of a zhuzh, quite frankly. I mean, the 2004 film mm. was fine. But even like as somebody who used to read that book 
over and over. It was the very first chapter book, like book that had chapters that I ever read. I'm very, very, very invested in that book. And the the 2004 film was was charming and sweet and fine, but it didn't set my world alight. Like it wasn't the Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings of of C.S. Lewis. Uh, yeah, you, you might be I mean? asking, expecting a lot, maybe for that. But um, I mean, I'm I'm look. I feel like there's we should be hoping for every great book to have a Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings level adaptation I, of it. I kind of, my take on Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is it needs an almost Burton-esque touch to it. Like it needs a slightly surreal dark fantasy feel to when they go into Narnia. I don't know if it needs darkness. I think it needs a little bit of an edge and I think she can potentially bring that while still keeping the heart. I mean, I guess we'll know better after Barbie, which I'm so excited We will, but that's about. one of the things that gets me is like, you know, the, the film Twitter is obviously losing their shit over Barbie in a very ironic sense. She's, she's allowed to make that IP, but she's not, al- not allowed to make this IP. She's allowed to adapt Little Women, a beloved book, but she's not allowed to adapt Lee's beloved books. Mm. So the double standards and hypocrisy uh, and snobbishness, frankly, of film Twitter never ceases to amaze me. <laughs> I do think it is a little, no, and this isn't about this specifically, but I think the larger trend that there doesn't seem to be a viable career path for writer-directors to make original stuff, original stuff yeah, that's at all. Yeah. Like, as a career, like, somebody to have the kind of careers that, you know, the Coens and Soderbergh and the, the filmmakers that came along in the 90s had of making, like, reasonably commercial but very distinctive idiosyncratic original films and and you feel like Greta Gerwig is someone in that tradition Um, and a lot of these directors that end up just disappearing into franchise land. I'm not saying that's what's happening to her and, you know, maybe after this she comes back and it's the next, uh, you know, the next Ladybird or whatever. Mm. But it just, as a overarching trend, it's a little depressing. Well, it's interesting because obviously this would then mean that, you know, if she does this, two more Narnia films on top of Barbie, on top of Little Women, the only original film she's made as a director would be uh, Lady Bird. Of course, you know, she wrote Frances Ha and, mm-hmm. and the rest other of things. Yeah, but but yeah, but, that's interesting. But, but at the same time, she clearly, she has very much said, I want to be, you know, a big movie maker. I yeah. want to make big movies. And you're right, absolutely. There is, I, I think, and we've talked about this a lot, a huge problem right now of Hollywood trying to take the risk out of filmmaking and uh, trying to make, you know, everything that is a sort of nailed on certainty already. And I, I think that's a, a fundamentally... Um, disastrous strategy. So I 100% agree with you on that. But to criticise individual filmmakers for trying to do good work with existing IP, existing adaptations and so on, I think that's a whole different thing. Mm. And, and so I agree with Chris on that. I think if she wants to make a line of the wardrobe, maybe. Hell's freezing over. <laughs> no, his name is Aslan. Oh, okay. Um, and, and it unfroze, actually, in the book. <laughs> I but, completely misread that book. <laughs> but, uh, but no, if she wants to do this, I think, I look, I feel like she's got a very similar, um, you know, childhood reading list to me, given that she's made an amazing little woman and uh, is now moving on to, to C.S. Lewis. So I'm all for it. Sooner or later, she'll get to someone we do care about. <laughs> <laughs> Only kidding. I love those books. She uh, can do June Messiah next, James. She could do she that. She could, if Denis were not already doing it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, in counterpoint to what you were saying, Jeremy, as well, there are filmmakers out there who are plowing their own furrow. You know, Wes Anderson and um, Damien Chazelle for example, are, are examples of, of directors who haven't yet succumbed to franchise-itis. Uh, you could say Ryan Johnson, but the exception, obviously, of, of The Last Jedi, but he's a guy who has very much ploughed his own furrow. Well, he's, he's now got his own franchise. He has his own franchise. Mm. Well, yeah. so has Nolan in a post-Batman world, Yeah, very right? much so, yeah. 
very much so. So the opportunities are out there for sure. But most of those guys established their names. And are guys. 20 years ago and, and are guys. Still a, yeah. yeah, that's still a thing. Uh, all right. Well, let's talk about uh, Hollywood uh, yet again and box office and all that sort of stuff because let's talk as we did last week. I think we were talking about box office last week, but the uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny opening weekend caused many tongues to wag and many hearts to flutter and many people to look at their their, their stock options hmm. uh, last week because it only opened only to $60 million and that was hailed as a big old flopperoonie. Um Jeremy, do you have a, do you have a, do you have thoughts about this? Do you have thoughts about the way that that the, the industry has progressed, maybe even regressed? That the sixty million dollar opening weekend is is seen as a disaster. I feel like the last ten to fifteen years of Hollywood has become this sort of circular firing squad after Netflix came along, which was this whole tech disruption, tech industry view disruption of what was seen as a sort of irresponsible industry because there was too much power in the hand of of creative people and too many things that couldn't be entirely um, predicted out of spreadsheets and algorithms. And as Helen was alluding to, there's been this attempt to de-risk the um, film industry in America from people who think they know better because, you know, they're from the activist investors, the private equity people and the tech people who have come into it in recent years. And I think what everyone is slowly starting to discover, potentially too late, um, is that you can't de-risk spending $200 million on something, (laughs) on something that doesn't exist. And you can't you can't remove that risk by just making it resemble something else that already made money as much as possible because you get to a certain point like we've been in this remix era of filmmaking where everything is about revisiting old stories and not just by making sequels or prequels but by going back into those actual stories or de-aging the actors or whatever and it's going to get is getting to the point where you're almost just going to be filming people watching the original films and putting that on screen. But it's this attempt to go like, well, if we can just eliminate risk, we can bet really big on the stuff that's guaranteed to make money and then just have a more of a widget kind of structure. It's more like making iPhones. And I think what people are starting to realize is that that doesn't actually work. Mm. And the illusion of that from how Will Marvel did for a long time, I think has led to a lot of doubling down on strategies that are now um, coming home to roost with indie. And I loved Dial of Destiny, um, but it cost $300 million. And if that movie costs $300 million, it's probably more like 400 with the marketing and it needs to make almost a billion dollars to turn a profit. And that's just no one, no way to run a railroad um, yeah. and they're just spending too much money on these and films in fairness and we, we talked about this a little bit the other day um, spoiler in the indie spoiler special mm-hmm. um, but, which is now yeah but which it will is, be. we will be out very soon but um, you know some of that is COVID money um, in the same way that the, the Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 budget was was affected by COVID not only the delays that led to inevitable costs because anytime you've booked things and then you suddenly have to rebook that's going to be a bit of, bit of money but also just the massive extra um, amount of organization and management needed to mitigate against COVID risk, even when you got back in, uh, which was obviously a huge um, stress on the filmmakers. And you know that in the case of Mission Impossible, because that whole thing about, you know, Tom Cruise shouting at people. If Tom Cruise is stressed out by COVID regulations, you know everybody else is as well. 
So I think, you know, that has added a lot to the budget of these movies and it has made it, as you say, Jeremy, that much harder to get to a break-even point. Um, and so maybe in a, in a normal circumstance, it would have it would have done better. I think also, I think we are, you know, I think there is also the, the fact that people are being kind of trained out trained of going out. to the cinema yep. because Very much so. they're being told, well, everything will be on Disney Plus mm-hmm. in a few weeks. So and why? Indie will be. It's six weeks now, six weeks, yeah. unless, I mean, unless you have a filmmaker or a star like a Tom Cruise or a Jim Cameron who is powerful enough to go fucking... You st- Keep your hand away from that. Keep your hand away but from that. even then, I don't think it helps because in a specific usage case where someone says, well, I'm going to have a six-month window for mine, it doesn't make any difference because the average cinema guy isn't going to realise that and they're so used to things turning up. I mean, like, Fast 10, less than a month. Yeah, but you're saying that, Jim, but, but then Top Gun Maverick makes 1.3 billion but because I think there Cruise has the power to, to stop it from going to streaming. Do you know what? I don't think that's the reason. I think that's a film that just had to be seen in cinemas and I think that was the messaging around that film, that was the marketing of that film, that was what all the critics said and that was, you know, what you got from looking at the trailer. And I think to a certain extent, Avatar was that as well. It felt like a quintessentially cinematic experience that, you know, not everyone has a 75-inch TV. I don't have a 75-inch TV at home, but, you know, it's not the same not thing. And even if, you, even if you did have a 75-inch TV, it's not the fucking same as seeing it in the cinema. And I think those films scream to be seen in a cinema in a way that, that indie doesn't. In, indie, I mean, indie is a great cinema experience, like, to be clear. But, um, but yeah, you're right. It doesn't have quite the um and it didn't have quite the ecstatic reviews that certainly Top Gun had yeah. and to a only slightly lesser degree and Avatar. C- certainly not reviews saying you have to see this in the cinema yeah. and yeah. you know Dead Reckoning Part One will yeah. have people going, you have to see 100%. this in the cinema. And, and Dune I, is another one which feels yeah. inherently cinematic. Yeah. The Meg too is <laughs> yes. gonna be one you have to see this <laughs> Absolutely. in the cinema. Uh yeah. I, I I also have a thing and I said this on our uh, spoiler special for Indie, which you haven't heard yet, but it will be out soon, I promise. Um so much attention now being focused on the opening weekend. And obviously this is not a new thing. This has been the case for, for a long, long time. But it's been interesting watching the way things have changed over the years when obviously films did have legs back in the day. You know, Raiders became a thing because you could have a film have legs back in the back in 1981. It wasn't all about the opening weekend. Now it absolutely is. And when a film doesn't do well in the opening weekend preposterously with a $60 million opening weekend or a $55 million opening weekend in the case of The Flash or a $29 million opening weekend in the case of Elemental, then that becomes a story. And it doesn't have to. So I feel that, you know, there's so much attention from studios on the marketing of their movies. Everything's geared towards the opening weekend. All the interviews with filmmakers and, and, and talent is geared towards the opening weekend. And I don't think that you would necessarily you completely avoid flop status for a lot of these movies. But if you got Harrison Ford out now in week two, if you had, you know, one of the problems with The Flash was that pretty much nobody was was speaking for that movie for obvious reasons, apart from the director and producer. And we had an interview with Michael Keaton, of course. But if you had people getting out ahead of that, if you had a, the elemental cast getting out ahead of week two, week three, that film has displayed longer legs than people were expecting. Then that doesn't become the the story. It may it may only make a slight difference to the box office, but then suddenly it doesn't become the India as a flop story. If you get people out there and it becomes and doing, India has legs, yeah, it becomes India has legs. It goes go see it in the week or two, go see it in week three. People may not even know it's out. The the only thing with that is that the studios, I believe, get a bigger yeah. percentage of week one, and then it declines that's as the weeks go on, so and that's why mm. they push week one quite as hard yeah. as they do. Um, and also, I guess it simplifies their schedule. But I do feel like both studios and cinemas are suffering right now and both of them 
could probably work on some stuff. Um, I went to a cinema chain the other day and it was massively understaffed and it led to just impossible, ridiculous delays, just getting a drink and being, you know, told which which screen we were in and all this kind of stuff. And it absolutely was not a fun experience. It wasn't a, a fun, easy experience of, you know, going into a cinema because they're not investing in the staff and the cleaning and the, you know, keeping the toilets working kind of stuff sometimes. Keeping the screens well lit. And I sometimes. get that there are, there are economic reasons for that, but equally mm-hmm. that's another reason that people stay home. So the cinemas, I think, need to f- take a long, hard look and figure out what, what is keeping people away. I think the studios need to sort their lives out. And and I, I think it's unfortunate that, you know, India is kind of falling between the stools a little bit. Yes, absolutely. Very much agree with that. Uh, and that's one that's going to run and run and run. I suspect Mission's going to do really well at the box office, but but even then, that cost around about the same as, as Indy. So it's it's ceiling is pretty high and as well. And it's got, what, two weeks, one week before Barbie and Oppenheimer? Ten days now because of Ten days. moving forward a little bit. Although whether it's moved forward in the States, I'm not entirely sure. It's ceiling is high and Tom Cruise is dangling from it. <laughs> he certainly is. <laughs> Rattlesnake down the pants and everything. Uh, some very, very sad news broke uh, last week um, just as the podcast had gone up that the great... Alan Arkin, who of course mm-hmm. won an Oscar for his role in Little Miss Sunshine, has been nominated two other times in his career, uh, passed away at the age of 89. Yeah, what a what a talent. I think I first saw him in Gross Point Blank. Do you remember as the really? psychiatrist? I think that was the Must. first time I'd There's seen him. No I'm sure I'd way. seen him on TV and stuff, but I hadn't like sat no. down and watched one of his movies. Come on. Come on, Helen. I was young. You I disappoint needed the film. <laughs> I, I needed the word. Um, but no, he's he's so good in that. I just I just loved him in that. No, don't give it a shot. Don't give anything a shot. One of the things so I thought about when I was looking back and people were posting clips and photos yeah. and after, after he passed away was how naturally he let himself age mm. and he really embraced that and lent into like, you know, acerbic middle-aged characters and acerbic older characters. And I was just thinking about that because in a time when no one ages anymore and our action heroes are the same ones from the 80s who are now in their 60s or, or whatever, just an actor like that who used the natural progression of time as an asset yeah. and and really like, it broadened his palate the older he got and the way his voice changed. It's such a great voice. Yeah. And that was a real asset for him. And he could do it all as well. Like yeah. He was a very, very versatile actor. He was a singer uh, also, which 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 comes in handy uh, in a film that I don't think many, many people have seen, but I, I saw it a few years ago. It's absolutely batshit insane. It is called The Return of Captain Invincible, and it's a kind of superhero musical spoof before superhero Sold. movies really were a proper thing. It came out in 1983, and he stars as Captain Invincible, who's a superhero who becomes an alcoholic, and he goes up against his arch nemesis, played by Christopher Lee, who, who sings in the movie and it's just it it's every bit as insane as the movie you've just pictured in your head uh, it's not entirely successful but it's good and he had he had a tendency to swing for the fences so you know I, I recently for the first time watched his turn as Inspector Clouseau in Inspector Clouseau 1968's Inspector Clouseau uh, Peter Sellers didn't return to the role uh, after the first two um, 
Clouseau movies. And so they recast with Alan Arkin. I would love to have seen the casting discussion that led to Alan Arkin replacing Peter Sellers. And again, not an entirely successful film, but I admire the fact that he was he was mm. stepping up and doing that and, and stepping into the shoes of a giant, frankly. And he could do it all. He could do drama. He could do comedy. He's in one of my favorite movies of all time, Glengarry Glenn Ross. Yeah. Uh, he's incredible in that as a kind of put upon, harassed uh, George Aronoff. And he is so Oh, so good. And that holds his own, obviously, with that amazing, amazing cast. He is, he's tremendous. And Little Miss Sunshine. I mean, wow. Yeah, yeah. Jimbo, big fan? I do. I like Alan Arkin. I also like Adam Arkin as well. Uh, I like, I'm a all, the Arkins. Ar- all the Arkins. All the Arkins, really. Any Arkin that you can <laughs> give me. Arkin the Covenant. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. The Arkin the Covenant. Um, yeah, loved him in Argo. Loved him in all these sorts of things. I, I he's, he's a very soulful actor. Like, I think I... He's one of these guys where he just carries the sort of weight of the world in his eyes and I think mm. sucks you into all the characters he played that way. Like he had a real sense of sort of depth to him. Um, yeah, I, I loved it. It was really sad, but it was also it was sad the way it broke because it was one of those things where his his passing was announced on Twitter and then it was like written off as a hoax and it all became a little bit farcical before it was finally confirmed, which actually made it frankly all the more upsetting. Yeah, it was yeah. a bit, yeah. But you're, you're right, it kind of world weariness and... Mm. and, and a weird mix of cynicism and warmth, which I think yeah. is, is really special. Yeah, he'll be missed. Argo, fuck yourself, uh, as they say. Uh, two more Alan Arkin movies you should check out. Uh, Freebie and the Bean from 1974. And he directed a couple of films as well, but The In-Laws from 1979, oh, yeah. which he's very, very good, opposite Peter Falk. And uh, one of the great lost Columbo villains. He should have been a Columbo bad guy. He should have been a... a Columbo might have met his match. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, The great Alan Arkin, who passed away last week at the age of 89. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here. Just jumping in real quick. uh, The day after we recorded the podcast to tell you a couple of things. One, we didn't have enough time in the pod booth to tell you that it was New Empire Day yesterday, which means that the new issue of Empire is on sale right now. And it is an absolute belter. On the cover is Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon, a world-exclusive look at that movie, the first of two parts coming your way. A big old sci-fi spectacular that started life as a Star Wars pitch. So if you've ever wanted to see Zack Snyder's take on Star Wars, then this is the film for you. I was on set, and when I was in Pasadena a couple of weeks ago, that's what I was doing. I was talking to Zack Snyder and his wife, Deborah, in their post-production facility. There's a ton of other great stuff inside the issue as well. It is on sale right now in all good, evil, and virtual news agents, and is well worth your time and money. Speaking of your time and money, something that is worth that is our next live show. We're doing a live show once again at King's Place, our spiritual home in London, on September 9th as part of the London Podcast Festival. And as ever... Once we sell out or get close to selling out that show, we'll make streaming tickets available for people who can't make it, can't say fairer than that. So if you go to kingsplace.co.uk, you can buy tickets to that live show and any of the other incredible podcasts that will be part of the Lud Podcast Festival, including Ben Travis's Disney University. So keep in peel for that. What else? In the reviews section that is coming up, there are two films that came out this week that we did not review. One, Quentin Dupuis. Smoking causes coughing. We'll get to next week. Uh, I hear very, very good things indeed. The other one is Insidious, the Red Door, a.k.a. Insidious Chapter 5, which marks the directorial debut of Patrick Wilson, who, of course, is the star of the first two Insidious movies and the Conjuring films as well. We had not seen that film. 
at the time of recording. Only Helen has now seen it. I don't know what she's given it, but I think it may be two or three stars. It's in that camp. Uh, she has now seen it. They did not show it to critics. Draw your own conclusions from that, of course. Right. Done. Back to me, I guess. Okay, should we have a guest? Let's do it. All right, our final guests this week are Leah Lewis and Mamadou Athi, who are the stars of Pixar's Elemental, which we're about to review in the review section, so I'm not going to say too much about the movie, except to say that she plays Ember. It takes place in an element city where elements, fire, earth... <laughs> earth, wind, and fire. Uh, <laughs> fire, water, air, and earth are elements that have become somehow anthropomorphized. Did I get Whoa, it right? Oh, good work. Fucking nailed it. Take that word. And uh, and she plays Ember, who is a fire spirit, and he plays Wade, who is a water spirit, and together they're thrown together in what I'm saying is Pixar's first proper rom-com, mm. and a rather charming one it is as well. And when they came to London a couple of weeks ago, I sat down with them, and we had a, a pretty interesting and unexpected chat. It went off in some interesting directions. Cool. There we go. Leah Lewis and Mamadou Athi. Enjoy. Leah, Mamadou, welcome to the Empire Podcast. How are you both? Great, thank you. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Not too bad, not too bad. I believe in your last interview of the day. You know that old adage, save the best for last? Yeah. Yes. Forget all about it. Because... <laughs> it is, oh, I love a good podcast. <laughs> what, what, what sort of podcasts do you listen to? Ooh, I actually have been listening to this true crime podcast called Psychopedia. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. But honestly, uh, I would take it in doses. I started to get really wigged out after listening to like back to back to back episode and knowing what like the humans are capable of. <laughs> <laughs> but I also listened to this thing called um, How to Be Human by Sam Lamott. Okay. And he yeah. brings on a lot of creative, inspirational experts in their field. And they just have incredible different conversations. I love stuff like that where you wow. bring in different people and, you know, talk about self-help, growth or like whatever profession they have, the mm. best of it, explaining why they do what they do. That's my What's favorite. What's it called again? How to Be Human. How to Be Human. How to Human by Sam Lamont. How to Human. Oh, okay. So it turned into a verb. Okay, I like that. really good. I'll send you a good episode. Yeah, all right. Again, just forget that for for, for this. You guys provide the interesting conversation. I just sit here and go, "Mm mm-hmm, every now and again. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I fully agree. Uh, Mama, do you listen to podcasts? I do, actually. I'm a big fan of Mark Maron's podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, Which we can't say the full name of. Well, we can't. WTF. But (laughs) it's a Disney Pixar film. We can't say what it stands for. Yeah, no, it's great. And I listen to um, The Daily occasionally um, and uh, Morning Combat. Uh, I used to listen to Undisputed, lots of sports one and First Take as there well. There you go. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. You guys are, you guys are proper. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Like how do you podcast? Do you podcast in a car, on your way to work? How, do you, how does it work? Either on my bike, yeah. on the way to work, well, on the way to work. Uh, on, from, the, from the trailer to the set. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of times on my bike or just like when I'm cleaning, doing stuff like that. Yeah. Cleaning, that's the best time to do a podcast. Yeah. I like waking up in the morning with something inspirational or motivational. I really like walking around and listening to podcasts. It feels like I'm having a conversation with someone almost. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy being in a car, bus, train, listening to a podcast. Mm-hmm. My understanding is you've you've had a lot of children interviewers over the last couple of days. They're actually amazing. Yeah. Amazing interviewers. Beautiful too. They've been asking some of the most thought provoking questions too. Again, forget about that from me, but (laughs) (laughs) what what's uh, what's been your favorite question from from the little ones? Oh, that young lady. Oh, I'm trying to remember that question. There was one today. She asked she asked about how would we change the industry to make it more inclusive for 
women and, and, and people and, and minorities in general and just how would we that was the gist of the question yeah, yeah. that's exactly wow. what you said yeah. and I was like what <laughs> <laughs> and I was like alright let me think about this and I answered a question it was, it was just like really moved that she had the you know it's just a great question yeah I mean honestly a couple of kids have asked this question of why why do young girls need to see a character like Ember mm -hmm. show her emotions like that yep. and be a strong female lead yep. but then there was also one question that I thought was actually just really bold in general and I love when kids you know they're unabashedly like straight to the point mm -hmm. no she filter was, she addressed you know the different notes to racism in this film and I was like what I mean, I was just shocked that a child would be like, can you answer this question? It was very yeah. shocking and cool for her to come up with that. Absolutely. What sort of conversations did you have with Peter about about that, about how this film nods to that and, and tackles that? I talked with Peter about the about tackling racism in, a, in an animated film, mm -hmm. in a quote-unquote kids movie, which is such a bold thing to do. It's a huge subject to tackle, but it does it with complexity and and no little compassion. My my conversation was with Pete was really simple. He was just like, he just talked about why he was making the movie. Mm -hmm. He spoke about his parents and how he understood so much more about them as he grew older. And as he got older, he became more and more overwhelmed with gratitude and like the feeling of like, oh my God, they've sacrificed so much. Mm -hmm. And... And he also talked about experiences like when he was younger and he, I remember him talking about something about like, you know, his father, you know, shouting at people because they were saying things, racist mm -hmm. things to him. Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, Pete being Pete was like, oh, don't, don't yell at them, dad. You know, he's such a sweet guy. Those are the, those are the conversations that we had. It was really simple, but it was very clear. I understand, you know, I'm an immigrant myself. It, it didn't, there wasn't really much to talk about outside of like, Hey, what was your growing up experience like? Or like, what are you feeling right now? What is this? What is this? This phrase you used before? This debt of gratitude. Like, what's going on? And and I feel the same way. You know, I feel the same way. I, I grew up with my my parents. They left everything in Mauritania and weren't able really to go back for fear of like you know losing their life. Mm. And that feeling of just like having to start over as adults with three children, I can't imagine that. So anyway. We didn't really have to talk too much because we understood. Yeah, it's it's all there in the in the in the opening of the film, the visuals of the film, the way that it, you know, it, it plays out, the, the relationship between Ember and her father mm -hmm. uh, as, it, as it progresses through the film. There's a really, again, having spoken to Peter about this, I mean, and he's been very open about having experienced huge, profound loss during the making of this movie and how that impacted him. And um, one of the things that came up in our conversation was his idea that. Ember and Wade almost represent the dichotomy of Peter, the, the the two different sides of him in a way. That there's the the rage and the anger that he that mm -hmm. almost you know he almost gave into just after his father died. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then Wade has the compassion, the compassionate side. Yeah. And again, I don't know whether that's something that you actively dialed into as actors, or was that just something that, that just naturally happened that you took your cue from from Peter from Peter and his emotional intelligence yeah i mean the the man is compassion embodied it's it's it emanates from him you just can't help but to want to be as open and as he is and as vulnerable as he is and share those parts of yourself almost immediately well immediately yeah because it kind of his his empathy kind of demands it 
you know, in a, in a sense. And demand is a strong word, but like it just allows it. I should say, like it allows that kind of vulnerability. And you just you want to you want to share that kind of experience because it's it's not very often that a director or anybody, actually, not a director, just anybody, let alone a director, is just so like here's my heart. Yeah. And I'm going to share it with you. What do you think? Can you do you want to share yours with me as well? You you want to meet you want to meet them in the same like like response to like. I mean, I actually think it was quite easy to slip into these roles because, you know, I just related to my role. And I also just related to Wade's story in general. Like, it just kind of shows how dynamic all of these different characters are, too. I think, like, with Peter specifically asking about who I am and who Mamadou was as a person and kind of what Mamadou was saying, like, him just being himself, like it does push you to also go to the depths of that place in you where you're like, okay, like what can I bring out today? Like as Peter has like laid his whole life on the line with this project. But I think like a lot of these messages and the stories that the characters tell, like it was fairly easy to slip into that place because I related to a lot of it myself. So a lot of it was just keeping my heart open and being willing to go to all those places and stay as vulnerable as possible too, which isn't always easy on every single project. There's a bunch of different factors that can hold you back from, you know, just completely just like letting go. But again, like Peter really created that space for us too. And so did Denise and our writers as well. I'm always fascinated by just the the, the act of recording voices for an animated movie uh, and, and how you track, because obviously the, it's not, all made at once. I imagine you're back into the booth every now and again, recording stuff and re-recording stuff. And maybe it's been a couple of months since you played these characters and then you have to tap back into them again. Was that your experience or was it very, very different on, on this one? These characters were so, well, first off, I, I had a very clear idea of who Wade was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it just felt right. I was like, yeah, I know this guy. Um, and then with Pete, it's all just... It's all, it, it's all just a kind of play. It was just a lot of play and like openness and just figuring things out. I mean, once we had like the first meeting, I was like, I know what we're talking about here. Uh, honestly, like it was just one of those things that felt very clear from the very beginning. It's not always like that. A lot of times you got to figure it out. You got to do a lot of homework. But I was like, oh, I, I understand this guy. I understand this guy. I know what you're after as well. That kind of optimism, that kind of goodwill, that kind of honesty, that kind of freedom in expression. Like there's there's... Sure, many ways to do it, but I know the way that I can do that, and that's just being available. Mm-hmm. And then if you allow yourself to be available, the rest is just like, okay, now here are the lines, and what are we doing? Okay. Yeah. That's simple. Yeah. So I think what's interesting is like, Mamadou actually just mentioned to me too that in total, the amount of time that we spent recording would probably add up to 10 days total. Right. We would go in for four to five hour sessions, and it was probably like every other week, and then it was like month to month. But I always think that, like, because I was so close to Ember and, you know, how explosive she is, but also how intimate she can be in her private areas and, like, just so tied to her family, like, it was pretty easy to just come back in and be like, okay, while I'm telling this character's story, I'm also telling my story. And I think, like, because Peter was so kind, gentle, and encouraging. It wasn't like, okay, like, whoa, it's go time. Like, I'm shaky at this. He was very good at being like, you got this, you know this, and take as much time as you need. Like when we're doing these sessions, we're going through so many different ranges of emotions. We're doing happy, anguish, romantic, funny. Mm. And I think to be able to 
execute all of that just in a matter of a couple hours, you know, it would seem daunting. Like I think when I was in the car on the way, I'm like, oh, how's today gonna go? But the moment you step into that booth, it's almost like when you step onto set, you're like, I'm in the pocket, I'm here. And like what Mamadou was saying, like staying available to every single moment. Because I think Peter was also really amazing and the writers, um, John and Kat and Brenda, were so good with asking us, Mm -hmm. how do you feel about this? And can you do that one thing with your voice that we heard you do? So you're almost kind of like, wow, like I'm really hands-on with this process. And you know, you don't really fall out of it like when you leave the booth if you're already a part of that process because even when i left i was still thinking to myself what are different things i could try in the booth like what are some new ideas that um you know our team would team would welcome so i still feel like i was still kind of mentally there and if even if we weren't on set every single day if that makes sense it does it does and i have to let you guys go in a second but but ember has this explosive temper uh, which I, I, I think is, a, again, a really interesting trait to explore in a movie like this. And Wade is a crier who's very much in touch with his emotions. As actors, are those easy emotions for you guys to get in touch with? Is it easy for you to get in touch with that sort of very, very open-hearted, not maudlin, but very open-hearted side? And then the, you know, anger, explosive anger, is that easy to, to tap into? It wasn't always. Those, um, it was a part of my like life that I tried to not tried to, but I was I was a little embarrassed of before I was um, in school in acting school, and I had I had some really good friends in school that that showed me what it could look like to be on stage and free of that burden, and I thought it was so beautiful. So I I really um, in a sense kind of tried to imitate just like that kind of expression until I found my own, and it really was. My friends Gabe Levy and Mickey Tice, they're just some of the most beautiful actors I've ever seen in my life, mm-hmm. like genuinely. Um, and when it came to this, by that this point, having worked and being in the experiences where I had to be on set and like, okay, here's that big scene, <laughs> you know, and and you know, having ro- you know, built a roadmap to get there and then the work itself or the, the script itself helps you get there. You, you build a confidence like, oh, I can do that. I can I can trust myself now. I had a teacher, my teacher Ron, Ron Van Lu is is the best. He he used to tell us, he was like, you know, you have to throw yourself in the fire enough times to know how you got out. And I find I find that the way where I, I built my confidence. Mm. You know, I and mean, that's really the best way to build your confidence. Put yourself into the situation and you gotta <laughs> figure it out or not. Sink or swim. Yeah, actually, I had a I had a situation with the first scene that I had to cry um in a movie, not a movie, it was a TV show, Sorry for Loss, and basically I had to shoot the first episode and the fifth episode at the same time. It was my first day on set. Wow. And I didn't know what the situation was. I knew the character was suffering from depression, extreme depression. And all this to say, I had to cry in this car, even though in the first episode, it doesn't look like he's crying. You see in the flashback Mm. later, he's crying in the fifth episode. And I called my friend Yahya, and he told me this wonderful, I was like, dude, I, I don't know what the situation even is that built him up to this moment. Like, I'm just kind of like crying in a car. What do I just do? Just go sit and cry? Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's not even like a ramp up to it. And he told me the story. Basically, I'm sorry, I'm talking so fast. But I want to hit, <laughs> hit, hit, hit Basically, uh, he told me the story where our, our friend Zenzi was doing the scene from Three Sisters. She's playing Masha and she, she imitates a cry for the scene because she didn't have it in her. You know, she did a dutiful representation of what crying was. Mm-hmm. And... Our teacher, Ron, was like, yeah, good scene. Why didn't you cry? And she goes, well, I didn't have it, so I needed to do the scene. So I just did the you know, imitation of it. He's like, no, make the sound. And she's like, what? Make the sound. 
what? They go on and on like this until Ooh. she eventually just makes this like the not the huh, like the uh, like the real like uh, and yeah. and it came because she's an available wonderful beautiful actor. She's gonna have that energy. She has that EQ. She's she's ready to go. And he's like. He tells me that story and it's like, oh, so you just really have to put yourself out there. He's like, yeah, but mom, if it doesn't work, 50 people got a story. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? But, you know, it was, a, it was the first sign. Anyway, I don't want to take too much of the sign, but that was- What was, was the question? Favorite. The question was, how do you get in touch with those emotions and which, which, which is easiest to tap into? Interesting enough, like, uh, throughout this film, there were a lot of moments with Ember that because the script moved me so much, I was crying. And that actually comes pretty natural to me. But my, you know, our director, Peter, was like, hey, by the way, like, fire doesn't cry like that. You need to get it together. Well, in the nicer way that he said it. Um, <laughs> in the Pete's own way. <laughs> and I was like, woo, like, I am playing Wade right now. I need to relax. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually think with, I guess, anguish, rage, explosion, and anger, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that you could easily just yell your head off and be like, okay, like, color me angry. But I think like, it can come fairly easy to me because I have a very fiery and, you know, in in some of my like lesser great moments, explosive. Um, but when it comes down to like someone like Ember, I think it was like, for me, it was finding ways for you to hear why she's explosive. It's not just like, okay, I'm yelling. It's like, you know, Ember is frustrated. Mm-hmm. Ember is, you know, she's feeling tragedy that she's failing her parents. Like, I feel like that made it a lot easier because at first I was like, should I just scream? But for me, I was like, okay, that has like no levels to it. And you, you know, every scream is just a scream. But for me, it was really finding the reasons of why. And um, it was hard um, just kind of like, walking into the studio and being like, okay, bam, let's do an explosion. So I do think that for showing Ember's side of, you know, being explosive, it did take me a second to play her for a couple hours to ramp up into being that explosive. Because we did try to do like some of her larger moments like in the beginning of the session, but I just think like coming from the car, coming outside, drinking some water. I'm like, I don't know if I'm quite there. So it took a second to kind of like get mm. there, if that makes sense. It does indeed. Uh, sadly, on that note, I've got to let you go. No, uh, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. This is the, We should make this podcast, just call, we should just call it How to Pixar. Yeah. <laughs> because, How to Pixar, yeah, it's perfect. I think we've got the new show. We'll meet you back here next week. We'll do I another like episode. I like it actually, very much like that. It's so comforting. Brilliant, yeah. Mamadou. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Really Thank you so much. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, so that was Leah Lewis and Mamadou Athi. And now let's talk about Elemental, shall we? Uh, Hell's Bells? Yeah, so I think that's fair to call it Pixar's first sort of rom-com, but... Um, you, you could maybe say Wally uh, at a stretch. I guess Wally is Kind well. of. I think the, the rom-com yeah. is, is adjacent to the main story. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but this is very much about oh, yeah. two characters falling in love. Yeah, yeah. I think so. So this is, uh, as you said, a city where the elements live together, but fire is a sort of a recent arrival to this city. The idea is that they've come much more recently than the rest and are, are kind of not quite fully integrated, you might say. It's, it's almost a sort of... Uh, you know, a kind of, I don't know, Irish people or Jewish people in New York in the late 19th century, kind of a level of, you know, part of the city, but not quite accepted by Mm. everyone around them, still treated with a little bit of suspicion and a little bit of, um, just, just not quite fully integrated with everyone mm. else. And crucially, the way that the city is not own. really built for them. Yes, exactly. It's a very water-based city. Exactly. Um, and so uh, so Ember is, you know, her family came there when when she was 
basically on her way into being. And uh, they have made a life and her father has set up a, a family stories voiced by Ronnie Del Carmen, of course, uh, Pixar stalwart. And they have their own family story in Firetown and she is expected to take over as her dad, who's increasingly ailing, begins to retire. Uh, the problem is that the health code has found loads of violations and this inspector called Wade, who is Mamadou Athi's character, is, you know, has basically put in a report that will have them shut down. So the two of them then team up to stop his report getting to his superiors. So he's kind of trying to undo this report that he sent early in the film. And so it's an interesting way of having them meet. Um, I don't know. It's it's cute. And it's one of these kind of high concept Pixar adventures. It's still very pacey, even though it's a sort of a rom-com. It's still lots of action, lots of running around town, lots of cool things to see, loads of colour on screen, loads of really fun incidental characters. I think for me, what didn't 100% work about it is that I never bought into the concept in the way that I did for something like Up or Inside Out or um, or the very best, a Wally, the very, very best of Pixar's work. Because the thing about, you know, they're trying to comment on immigration and integration and, you know, people feeling like outsiders and, and beginning to, to feel like they fit in. The problem with, with that as a metaphor in this case is that the fire people really do cause fires and they really do <laughs> cause damage where they go, which is not the case with immigrants generally as a group. Do you know what I mean? So so I feel like it's a very imperfect metaphor. It's the same thing with the um with the Zootropolis idea, you know, which had uh, you know, predators being yeah. treated with suspicion because of their nature. But again, the, the metaphor breaks down because predators really do eat other animals, you know, <laughs> and they are, they do actually <laughs> present a danger in, in a way that the metaphor breaks down. Anyway, so... I think it broke down a long time before that, <laughs> but well, well done for, for plowing through it. But you know what I mean? I think, I think, so I think that was a little bit of a, of a, a yeah. problem for me. I did mm. quite enjoy the fact that they keep making jokes about the fireish, the fire people. Yes. Fire. Um, that, that was amusing to me, to be honest. But, um, but yeah, it's, it, it, it's fun. It's, Charm, very very charming characters. Both of them, I think, did great um, great voice work, mm. uh, as did the wider voice cast. It, it's it's really colourful, really pacey, but it just doesn't feel a hundred percent Pixar. So it's it is very funny. It's very pacey. It's directed by Pete Sohn, who is you know again a Pixar stalwart, a, a real fixture at the studio. He knows what he's doing, but it just doesn't feel like it has that extra spark of Pixar genius. No pun intended. No, indeed. Uh, it looks lovely, though. I it love does, that kind yeah. of weird blend of sort of 2D, 3D. And I think Element City feels lived in. Like, I really loved the place. It had a real sense of place to it. Uh, and again, as we as we mentioned, I like the idea that it was, they have kind of, like the, they actually laid out at the beginning, isn't it, the different phases of immigration, that the elements came one by one and there's periods of time between them. So the city seems to have been built around this kind of water idea. Yeah. And it's not really built to accommodate people made of fire when all the infrastructure seems to have lots of free-flowing water through it, which, you know, kills them, which is not ideal deal um and the love story at its heart worked for me to a point i must admit i found the character of wade a little bit irritating but i thought but he's meant to be a bit he ridiculous. is meant to be a little bit irritating i will grant you that um but i i liked i think i liked the broader social commentary as well like it's not subtle you know it's about immigration it's about racism it's about otherness it's about finding your place in the world it's about familial obligations and breaking with the past to forge your own future and all these things and they're not particularly new or as I say subtly done but they rang true to me mm. and I thought actually it had a real sort of beating heart to it which I really enjoyed so uh, yeah I, I thought that, I thought it was a lot of fun it's not I mean it's a kind of we're in a period where 
I don't know, Pixar feels like some of the sheen has come off them. Yeah. Partly due to their output, and partly because I think the straight to Disney Plus spree they went through didn't do them any favours. Uh, so maybe this doesn't feel like quite as much of an event as a Pixar movie used to, but I still think it's definitely worth seeing. Jeremy, you've seen this one, haven't you? Well, so a couple of days ago, um, I hit Chris up and said, like, just tell me what's on the docket for all the review section and I'll make sure I've seen everything. Um, and so you sent me a list and I went to see Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny in Asteroid City. So I have not seen <laughs> this or any of the other films. That's the kind of professionalism. You took the James Dyer approach. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And then watched a whole bunch of TV episodes. <laughs> yeah, I watched the West Wing instead. All Good right. Man. So uh, what are your thoughts on Dial of Destiny? Good? I, I loved it. I cried at the end, you know. So did oh, I, for different reasons. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm I'm like the number one James Mangold stand. So, you know, it's it was always going to be in my wheelhouse, but... Yeah, he, he will give you man gold. Um, yeah, with this with this one, I, I was thoroughly charmed by this, as I was. I think I'm the only person in the world who's a fan of Peter Sohn's The Good Dinosaur, which I consider to be top-tier Pixar. Everyone really? Everyone else considers to be lower-tier Pixar. Yeah, yeah that, movie, that movie destroyed me. Uh, and this movie really touched me as well. I thought it was quite beautiful. I think it is... It's one of those movies where if you read the synopsis, it feels like a Pixar parody. Yeah, it does. And one of the things I, I'm not wild about is that it's probably along with Cars, the only one of these fantastical films that isn't tethered in some way to the human world, right? So, Wally. Wally, no one's ever pronounced it that way. Wally, Wally, Wally uh, is uh, tethered to the human world. Obviously, mm -hmm. Monsters Inc. is tethered to the human world. Um, inside uh, out, in, so, inside yeah, up, yeah. In, inside up, inside up. Oh my god, <gasps> have I just pitched the next great Pixar film? No, I think no, I have. <laughs> I think I think I fucking have. honestly give. It's a matter of time. It's a matter of time before we are. In, oh, that would be great. So it would be like all the emotions inside Carl's oh mind. My god. Anyway. Oh, my word. Squirrel! Make it happen. Make it happen. That's Doug. That's Doug. I know that's Doug. Oh. The true hero of that film. <laughs> the true hero. I just uh, met you when I love you. The true hero of that film, you could argue, is Russell, who is based on... Russell Crowe. Peter Song. <laughs> is he now? Yeah. That I didn't know. Yeah. 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 They, they look remarkably alike. Um, yeah, I was thoroughly charmed by this. Um, I can see why we gave it three, because we gave it three. But I also could see a universe in which you would give a four. Mm -hmm. But then I would be castigated, shunned, <laughs> cast out by my peers. I cast you out! Yes, it's like you like the good dinosaur and elemental, yeah. get out. <laughs> uh, but I do. What are you going to do? Shoot me. Don't shoot me. Please don't shoot me. Uh, so we get this one three stars. Three stars then for elemental. We are doing a spoiler special for this. I had a very interesting chat with uh, Peter Sohn and producer Denise Reem. All right. So uh, Jimbo, Run Rabbit Run is out on Netflix this week. It is. Uh, well, it was actually last week, but uh, what is it? Sarah Snook. It is. Sarah Snook. Uh, first kind of post-succession thing, although yeah, she an filmed odd, it. Yeah, an odd years. choice for this. Yeah. Uh, for obviously, to come out in the wake of succession finale. So this is this is Dana Reed's film, and it's kind of, it stars Sarah Snook as a sort of single mother who's raising a daughter called Mia. Kind of on her own, she has a decent-ish relationship with her ex-husband, who has a new partner. Uh, and she's having some difficulties. Her father has recently died, so she's inherited the house. Her mother, who she's estranged from, has been put into a home and has dementia. So she's kind of trying to piece together these fragments of her family, which are kind of all fallen by the wayside. And she's having difficulties with Mia. So the arrival of a rabbit, brackets, an evil rabbit, uh, kind of sets in motion a series of events where her child begins acting strangely. She starts wearing a rabbit mask. There are some sort of questions about her identity. And she starts basically just freaking everyone the fuck out. So, but it's not 
quite as simple as evil child does evil things. It's sort of it's all about sort of sifting up the past. She has some complicated relationships uh, and some complicated secrets in her past that come to the fore. And so it's trying to pick its way through that. And there's a sense of what is real, what is in her head, what is happening. But it's all a little bit muddled and it's not frightening. It's not even really unsettling. It's just relentlessly dour. Mm. It's a really downbeat film. And it just feels like a bit of a slog after a while. It goes to a very kind of slightly ambiguous finale as well. Um, I didn't love it, I've got to be honest. I thought Sarah Snook is fantastic in this. Like, it's a really good, really sort of traumatised, harrowing performance. And actually, sort of the newcomer who plays her daughter Mia in this, uh, whose name's uh, Lily Dottore, uh, she's really, really good as well. Like, both as kind of slightly terrified child of crazy mother, but then also slightly terrifying child, potentially possessed by an evil rabbit. Um... So yeah, a slightly odd film, definitely not essential. If you're a Snook fan, there's a great performance at the heart of this, but also it's just a bit dull. Mm. It's Snook out on Netflix. Hey. Yeah, there you go. It did. What would you give it, Jimbo? You're oh. a two. Let's be honest. <sighs> I'm between a two and a three. Somewhere, I, it, pr- it probably a feels tree. a bit. I, I'm a tree. Yeah, I'm, I'll give this tree stars. <laughs> All right. Tree stars. All tree right, stars. Then. Tree stars. Big fan. Big big hit in Ireland. Jeez. Tree stars. Then for Run Rabbit Run, you fucker. <laughs> You're a monster. Helen. Hiya. What else is out in the old films this week? Well, one I want to talk about, there's two documentaries I'm going to mention quite quickly. The first one is Name Me Lowland, which is out from the BFI. It comes from director Edward Lovelace, who made The Possibilities of Endless, the Edwin Collins recovery Oh, yes, 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 yes. And this is a very similar, sort of deeply embedded with a family, really close kind of look at a life. But it's the story of a family who came from essentially Kurdistan, from the, the north of Iraq, um whose son Lowand is when he when they came to this country he was five years old he's profoundly deaf and because there were no services to help deaf deaf children locally because they didn't have any other deaf people in the family um he was basically incommunicado they couldn't speak to him they couldn't talk to him he had no way of communicating back um and he came to this country went to a school for deaf children and prospered and most of this film is set with him as a as an just gorgeous, sparky, fun 12-year-old who reminded me of my nephew. I was very invested in his well-being and it's a question of whether the family can then stay in this country and kind of support his development further. I think it's a beautiful, very human documentary. Very, very obviously good for uh, deaf viewers because it has full subtitles and everything throughout. And, And interestingly, a lot of the voiceover is not voiceover, it's sign over. Hmm. And so when it cuts away to a different picture, all you know, all you have are the subtitles because there's no sort of audible voice going on, which is just a nice way of approaching approaching the subject matter and everything. Apparently, uh, Edward learned to sign as, as a result of making the film. Anyway, gorgeous, highly recommended. I loved it. I don't know if we have an Empire review, but it's an, an easy four for me. Um, I thought I thought it was gorgeous. And then the uh-huh. other one is Wham, which dropped on net dropped on Netflix. I think it was in cinemas one day last week. Um, and it's basically the story of of Wham. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know they have a fair bit of archive material of George Michael. Also, of course, Andrew Ridgely. It's basically made from I think his mum's scrapbooks. Seem to have played a, a large role in in the making the film. It's very charming. It makes it clear how sort of meteoric their rise was, and how how much they had to deal with in a very short space of time, directed by Chris Smith. Um, as you might expect, given that Ridgely is the one left standing, he comes out of it very well. Hmm. He seems like genuinely, and I think I think this probably is more or less right, as just a really cool guy who was not that invested in being a pop star and was just kind of cool to sort of 
let it go mm-hmm. at a certain point. Um, and that, you know, that's consistent with stuff he said at the time as well. But it's a, yeah, it's an odd dynamic just because one of them obviously isn't speaking directly for himself in the no, modern day. So, but, I still, but and, and obviously the music is great. The music is great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and slight. It's fairly it's slight. slight. It's, a very, go, it's a very kind of, yeah, yeah it's just a hero of the fact kind of a documentary. But it's breezy. Yeah. It's breezy. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed mm. it a great deal. Um, so, um, once again, I don't think we have an official Empire review for this. So, anywhere between one and five. I would, yeah, I would put it somewhere in the Three, high threes. High threes. It's very likable, yeah. but I didn't feel like it was reinventing the documentary form or anything. Yes, uh, indeed, indeed. Um, all right. Well, as we said, Dead Reckoning Part One, Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One, is out in cinemas on Monday. Uh, because next week's release schedule is otherwise a wasteland from which there is no escape, we're going to hold off on the big review. And also because I have to run out the door right now because I'm interviewing Alexander Burke in one hour, and it takes me one hour to get home. So you do the maths, <laughs> uh, maths on that, uh, Americans, maths. Um, and so we're not going to review Dead Reckoning Part 1 until next week. Jeremy's relieved because we're not going to spoil it for him. Uh, especially the bit where Ethan dies. We're not going to spoil that <laughs> bit. Uh, oh, shit! Um, but uh, we are going to say it's great, right? It's great. Fantastic. We're definitely going no to No one should listen to me because I've drunk the Macquarie Kool-Aid, but... It's amazing. Yeah, it. it's yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Four stars is Emperor Magazine, but... Um, well, it's... It's it's within one star of where it should be. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> it's, it's close. It's close. Uh, it is very, very close. Uh, yeah, I think it's absolutely terrific, and uh, we'll get into it next week for sure. Yeah, for sure. But anyway, on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. Where we'll be joined by I'm talking really quick, uh, Simon Pegg and Rebecca Ferguson, Woo! stars of the aforementioned Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. Also, probably someone else. I don't know. Cool. Maybe who knows. Who knows? Certainly, I don't keep track of these things. Why should I be expected to keep track of them? Anyway, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is time to say goodbye to my three colleagues of such lethal cunning, Helen O'Hara. Helen, I really must grill you about your Glastonbury Absolutely, experiences. Absolutely, Chris. I, I'll, I'll await that with bated breath. Pop Toodaloo. it in your diary for next week, why don't you? <laughs> uh, goodbye, toodaloo to you. James Dyer, is goodbye to you. Goodbye. Do you know who we've got on the Pilot TV podcast? I neither know and nor crucially care. Helen O'Hara. That's, that's true. who we have on the Pilot TV yeah. podcast. The acclaimed cellist. That's, yes, that's she's right. She's a violin player, actually. Oh, okay. Oh, is she? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah. she's into violin. Helen's on. She's tossing sax. a coin to Anya Shalotra and uh, Freya Allen for The I Witcher. Am. A real must listen. Uh, <laughs> and it's goodbye from a man whose failure to watch any of the movies this week means that he's been just largely sitting watching us talk about movies for the last 20 minutes. But nonetheless, we have enjoyed your presence once again in the fourth chair. Jeremy Dillon. Apparently, in Attack of the Clones, they had to loop the dialogue <laughs> in some of the scenes because you could hear George Lucas turning the pages of his newspaper when he was meant to be directing the actors. What? <laughs> That's got to That's be. That's from Hayden Christensen via Billy Ray on a different podcast talking about Shattered Glass recently. That, that, what? Come on, come on. You told me at lunch you had a great Attack of the Clones fact. Uh, and he I said didn't he realize. could do it under 27 seconds. You know what I gave right. that fact? Five stars. Five stars then to that <laughs> Attack of the Clones fact. That is my fact. <laughs> that is your fact. It's back! It's back! The three fact structure is back. What a doozy. And anyway, on that note, that is it for me. I am off to run home very, very quickly because I now have 57 minutes to get somewhere that is 60 minutes away. Bye! Bye. <laughs>